clubhouse. May I come in? Why do you bother to ask if you're going to push in anyway? How long will you keep this up? Could ask you the same question. Suppose I were to call on Mrs. Russell and explain that I'm engaged tomorrow night. Are you? I can be, if necessary. She won't accept it. The trouble is you assume she's weaker than you. <sighs> she is weaker than I am in this instance. We'll see. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the Gilded Age season one finale. Let the tournament begin. It was written <laughs> by Lord Julian Fellows and once again directed by Michael Angler. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. So much feedback on there, you guys. We've been having lots of great conversations. And I mean, if you want to beef up on like what is going on for real in history, you're going to love it. It's a great place to work out plot lines that maybe you, you didn't understand or want clarity on, or if you just want to vent about how, you know, shitty a human being Mr. Rakes is, you know, oh it's a great place to do God. that. It certainly is. We're not going to drag him, Queen. We're going to rake him over the coals. It's a Caroline pun that I stole shamelessly just now. Because <laughs> he heard my face go like, <laughs> you did shamelessly steal it, but that's okay. We're going to rake you, but him then I over gave, the coals. But then I gave you credit for it. So. Sure, sure. Guys, by the time you're listening to this, I hope you have headed to our website, podclubhouse.com, or Apple Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and have checked out our wonderful interview that we did with series creator, writer, and executive producer, Lord Julian Fellows, and series co-executive producer and co-series writer, Sonia Warfield. It was a wonderful sit-down. They answered all of our questions. We had about a million of them. They gave us 25 minutes of time. We even went a little bit over that, and we still had so many more things to ask them about. Oh, my goodness. They were wonderful. They were laughing, and they were very friendly, and I wasn't sure. You know, you never know when you have someone as accomplished as Lord Julian Fellows talking to you. You never know if they're going to be very, very, you know, stiff or or formal or anything like that, and I was, I was pretty nervous about it but he absolutely just you know was laughing along with us and talking and was really surprised at the small details that we would we would mention you know marion not getting to go to the edison big event and stuff and and he could tell that you know we're all really fans of the show and excited and that excitement was was really making sonia and julian very happy I think we asked them some questions that allowed them to really give animated responses. And I, I think you guys are going to hear that come through when you listen to it. I finally got to ask, uh, and it's been a question I have had literally since I watched episode one, a little background. We actually had a, a decent amount of time because there were some technical difficulties. We actually had some, we had actually had a decent amount of time talking to Julian and Sonia that did not get captured in the interview. Uh, so we actually have a lot of background info that we talked to them about that you are not going to hear, unfortunately. One of the things is that Mr. Watson, I don't know if you remember Caroline, but Mr. Watson, the uh, valet for 
George. Remember way back in episode one, I said, I wonder if there's some kind of connection to Mr. Watson, who was the valet for Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey, who we never see uh, when the show begins. When Downton Abbey begins, John Bates is coming to take the position of valet for the Mr. Watson who has left, and he's already out of the scene by the time Downton Abbey begins. Now that takes place 30 years in the future, but I had this great idea that Watson was going to be some descendant or relative of that Watson. So I asked Lord Julian Fellows, I had this i had the courage i finally bucked up the energy and i said are they related please confirm this theory for me and his response was what caroline he said he only knew about 20 surnames (laughs) (laughs) and so he just used watson over again and uh you know but there was a twinkle in his eye i wouldn't say that he totally you know would uh, dismiss the concept that they that there could be relations from across the pond i i hope that maybe next with 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 my theory in mind that maybe he he makes a little hat nod you know a little a little tip of the hat to if it next he season. does that's all you because i would say it didn't look like he had thought of that but it but for sure he was like oh no i just only know like watson's just one of that handful of names i know very funny it was a very responsive response he had a very genuine like 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 a light bulb went off in his head like he had not thought about it and, and he, was he like, laughed and smiled he did. he's like sure. I, I only know a handful of surnames <laughs> and i used them over again but we yes. did get a great piece of information which you will not hear in the interview but we can play for you guys right now are they ready? Are, do you think they're even ready for this news, Caroline? I think so. And we should we should say that this was from March 21st that this little little nugget is from. Yes, this this is Lord Julian speaking on March 21st. Well, today we've got the read through of the first three episodes of next year. So that's rather exciting, really. For all of you guys that are waiting for season two news, they're already in pre-production. They had a table read for the first three episodes. Three episodes are already written. I-, I was very excited to hear that news. I was as well because, you know, I feel like this is going by pretty quickly with like, okay, we, we just had the finale and then they're they're actually on the day of the finale. They're reading the first three for season two. Like, this is very exciting. Now, I know you are a Downton Abbey fan. fan. Oh, God, I said fawn. That's for all you valid heads out there. <laughs> Did those seasons come out quickly? They came out once a year, but okay, they only so but they only good. did. Uh, well, now the first season of Downton, sorry, first series of Downton Abbey, I think was only six episodes, but I think the successive seasons were all nine or ten episodes. I only ask because I'm wondering if there's like a pattern of that Lord Fellows is like ready to go. Like when, as soon as he gets, like even maybe before he's greenlit, he, he's already writing. Yeah, I mean, I would have to check the IMDb, but I think it basically came out uh, 2011 through 2016 uh, reliably. So every year there was a new series to look forward to that's wonderful because in this day and age my goodness sometimes we're waiting 18 months two years you know in between seasons for other shows and man i can tell you as a fan that it's 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 wearing on me mike it's wearing on me i i don't like waiting so long so i'm glad that we're getting to get stuff quicker I'm hoping that all shows start to have a more regular production schedule because I think the last two years have made it virtually impossible for normal production schedules to be in process. But also, remember, this show has been in the works for six, seven, eight years. Uh, you remember, this, yes. was a, this was originally going to be an NBC show. Wild to think of that before it shifted to HBO. So I think he's probably had a lot of these stories in his head for quite a long time. You know, with Downton Abbey, A New Era, 
the movie coming out in mm-hmm. April in the UK and um, the United States in May, you know, his Downton Abbey duties for at least right now are, you know, off the table. This is his project. This is what he's working on. So I was very, very excited to hear that they're already reading through scripts for season and two. And with Sonia as his co-writer for this, you know, and, and you and I discussed it, their process of passing, you know, scripts back and forth and everything. I suppose even when he's not working on it, someone's working on it. Sonia's working on it. So that that must speed up the process in some way to be able to continue to tell stories more quickly. Right. And which is, this is a first for him. Uh, he he never writes with anyone. His shows are always all written by Julian Fellows. I mean, if you look at the writing credits actually for this show, he's the only actual credited writer. Though it's known and, and they've been very open about their writing process of of writing, taking hands at parts of the script and then passing it back and forth. And then, then Julian gets the final polish uh, and he has the final say on, on all of the words. But that's new for him. And yeah, maybe it is helping speed up the process. Whatever it is, I'm I'm not going to lick this gift horse in the mouth. I'm very, very excited. So you can already tell my energy level is very high now. I've rewatched <laughs> the episode about 19,000 times at this point. I feel I think. the same way. Hey, you guys, I'm like, ah, oh my god, how many times have we seen it? But you know what? Gotta say, great watchability, rewatchability it is. on this series, and that's not something that I say often. A lot of times, you and I will finish a, a show, and while I have loved it and I've loved those characters, I want more, but I don't want to go back and revisit things that happened. This one, I found myself really enjoying the rewatches and really finding different things each time I watched the final scene of this finale is uh, John coming out or Jack coming out, picking up the newspaper with his broom in his hand, handing the paper to Bannister, Bannister looking across the street, making eye contact with church, nodding at each other. Now that nod has some knowing tension in it, right? Because of the things that went on with getting Bannister in trouble and Bannister, at least anyway, we, we believe that he knows now that Church is the one that ratted him out. We think it's Church that ratted him out. They never actually concretely said either of those things, but I think that's the good assumption to make, given all the information we know. Turner was involved in it, so who knows what she said or what what tale she twisted. Anywho, uh, and furniture being moved out, right? Because the ball is over, and so all of that rented furniture uh, is leaving the Russell's estate. Something about it felt very familiar to me. So before we went to record, I popped on episode one of this show. It actually starts with animals, farm animals in Central Park, furniture moving on carriages through Central Park. But then soon enough, we arrive at 61st Street. Jack comes out with broom in hand. He picks up the paper. He hands the paper to Bannister. Bannister looks across the street. He makes eye contact with Church, who is invoicing or keeping a log of furniture coming into the Russell's house. The Russell's house still has uh, still has barricades up on it, still has scaffolding up on it because it was still being finished. But it was just such a nice bookend that the the same beat that started the show ended the season i love that that is just a nice bow and i think it's such a great metaphor for this season as a whole if this show wasn't renewed for a season two i would be perfectly happy with this being a finale with a series finale because all of the major questions basically got answered. Bertha got her win. Uh, Marion didn't wind up with the asshole. Peggy 
Peggy has hope and and a light in her eyes for her child that she didn't know existed for the first time. Now, there's plenty there to go for a season two, but if it ended now, it would be perfectly wound up and bookended to that first episode. It's beautiful. The symmetry was lovely. And I think also gives you that that sense of satisfaction, you know, that that you're craving, especially for a finale. But in any story, you want that really clear beginning, middle and end, like something really happened here. We, it wasn't just we bopped into these people's lives for a hot second. No, like there was stuff going on that actually played out in front of our eyes and came to con- some conclusions, which is huge. Lots of times, my gosh, how many times have you and I've watched shows and at the end we're like, I really don't know where they're going to go for season two or you know man they really didn't answer that but at the same time i don't know where they could go this one was like okay we get it and we get we have some fresh starts and we have some storylines moving forward you and i have a complicated relationship with uh season finales uh <laughs> we haven't done that spiel on this show but we've done it on other ones where we have tackled we the do. finale uh and normally guys i mean you're you're having to wait about a week to hear this or just a little bit less than a week to hear this episode from when the finale aired there are plenty of shows out there where caroline and i have sat on the finale <laughs> for weeks because yes. because i well i think it's because we don't like saying goodbye to a show because there is going to be now a gap in time while we wait for season two but i think it's also this idea of not wanting to like to fully digest it right there's no more bites at the apple once once i finish recording this episode our thoughts are kind of down and so there's some pressure there as people who take this seriously and want to bring all of the good takes to you guys i think there's a pressure there to make sure you kind of get it all in and and digest it correctly because you and I have done this for a number of years now, we are a little bit more kind to ourselves in terms of like, well, you know, we can always go back and say, yes, well, we agree with that, that what was in that. And we, we didn't mention it during the, the different podcasts, but you're, but you're right. Like when we get more feedback from Twitter or Facebook or what have you, those, those are opportunities for us to get like a last comment in. But for sure, I, there is such a soft spot for these characters in our hearts and we carry them with us for all these weeks. I mean, this has been nine, 10 weeks that we've been sitting on these particular stories and really just, you know, enjoying them. And you hate to leave that world. You hate to walk away and go have to learn some new people. And and I don't know if you're like this, Mike, but when, when it comes to the end of a season like this, and now I have to go, I, I say have to, have to go meet new characters. I'm like, whatever. I don't even care about this other show. And it's like, I right. always start a new All show right. like that, like, whatever. I don't even know. They can't even be like Peggy. And then like, I meet them. And of course I fall in love with them. And we, you know, we dive in on the next podcast, but there's always that little bit like, Whatever. I just don't know. <laughs> exactly. Agnes understands. Look, I'm like Agnes. I'm a creature of habit. I don't want to break anyone new in. I don't even want to deal with that. So I know what I'm, I can get when I turn on the Gilded Age each week. And I don't want to have to mess with turning on some new show and I don't know what I'm going to get. It's interesting because when we were talking to Julian and Sonia, we asked them, are you team new money or team old rules? Sonia, interestingly, uh, Julian, like a master. Are you just going to spill it right now? Well, he hedged his bets, but she had a really interesting answer that I think kind of goes in line a little bit with what you're talking about. Don't the, spill it. Don't the, say what it is, you. The Mm-mm. predictability of people you know, let's say yes. it like that. Uh, I like it like that. Before, again, I, I just, just doing a lot of table setting here, guys. I know. We're 10 minutes into this. Oh, no. <laughs> See? We're, and we're, he's already jerking you around because this is, he doesn't want this episode itself to end. That's it. I got, I've got unlimited digital tape here, folks. <laughs> 
so you know i've made i've made a meal out of using no it's appeared in several different podcasts i i I say it to my son i carry it around my phone whenever i have to tell him no i play it (laughs) but i found a new one that i'm actually going to be using for you do you want to hear it well do i have a choice no you don't because i have all the buttons (laughs) caroline (laughs) you know when she said that here's the funniest Here's the funniest thing. My head jerked up when she said that. I like looked up, which is silly, but this whole time they've been saying Lena Astor and Carrie Astor, which no, neither of those nicknames apply to me at all. So when she yelled Caroline like that, I was like, what? <laughs> and then I was like, I didn't know that sounds silly because you're Mike. And for God's sake, you must hear your name on TV 10 times a day. But for me, I, I, I so rarely hear it. it. It literally got a head jerk from me. It was great because she she's trying to get through to her. She's like, Carrie, Gary. It's, it's like Stewie and family. Like, mom, mom, mommy, mom. She's like, Carrie, Carrie, Caroline. <laughs> I was like, no, I get it. I get it. Anyone who's tried to get your attention uh, knows that feeling. So, Because I don't give my attention out just, you know, willy nilly. You do not willy nilly your attention. That is no, absolutely you got to do something to get my attention. Otherwise, you know, hmm. let's talk about the elopement. This is the kind of storyline that is a lose-lose. Did I hear air quotes when you said that? Because I felt air quotes in my heart. The elopement air quotes. Well, because it's one of those things that only ends in heartbreak. If she goes through with it, ultimately she's going to end in heartbreak. And if she doesn't, at least temporarily, she's going to be swimming in a heartbreak. I I hate those storylines, but they're true. That's the human condition. Sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes you don't get Mrs. Astor to your ballroom. Sometimes your piece of shit boyfriend rakes you over the coals (laughs) you know it it doesn't end well and it can never end well let's walk all the way through this because there's a ton to work here uh we have to start with mrs chamberlain and her being not less than the third person to warn marion against mr rakes and his commitment to the new york city lifestyle my dear are you sure this is wise i'm quite sure it is not mr rakes feels it's our only way out of a logjam and i agree so what is his plan we're meeting in the park later to finalize details, but I know it's next Friday. It's a lot to ask. Go on. Can we meet here on the day? I'll get my bag to you somehow. And I'll provide the carriage to take you to Grand Central. Would you do that? Why not? I have no fear of scandal. I'm walking scandal as it is. And when we're married, we'll come back to New York and see how the land lies. After all, there's no law that says we have to stay here. I do not believe Mr. Rakes will give up New York so easily. You're wrong. Society means as little to him as it does to me. Then that is what matters. Even Marion is saying this is a stupid, dumb plan that makes no sense. And yet is going through with it. You have to know people in your life, especially young people that are like this, right? They know... Or they have at least a feeling that what they're doing is wrong, but yet it's what they have decided to do, and so it's what they're doing. They cannot be swayed from their path. Earlier in the podcast, I said Agnes was playing a very dangerous game in backing Marion into a corner. And this is the exact type of response you get when you have a young person especially feeling backed in a corner. She uses the phrase log jam, but that's essentially what... Agnes has done by making her, you know, holding back her approval, holding back any any even sense of even just talking about it, being more flexible, getting to know him a little bit, anything, anything. She's created a situation where Marion knows this is foolish, but doesn't feel like she has any other option. And to be fair, 
Ada's, you know, well, you can just wait and like, hopefully over time, Agnes, I mean, come on. That is the most Ada approach I've ever heard in my life. Just wait for infinity and eventually, maybe, hopefully, it will come around. Ada's got the patience for that. Marion doesn't. I feel for the girl and certainly, man, ugh, I've heard my name be called like that because I may have had moments where I'm like, you know what? I have no other way out. I'm going to do the thing that I know that is wrong, but at least things will move forward. Caroline! You might have to cut down the musical intro on that. <laughs> it, it makes it so short otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's but you get it, right? Like I've been screamed at like that because you something's got to change even if it's not in a good way. Something's got to give. At the end of the day, something does give. It's just not what Marion wanted here. Well, something is on your mind. Or are you going to tell me I'm wrong? I hope it has nothing to do with Mr. Riggs. I know Aunt Agnes doesn't like him. She will like him even less if you're planning some sort of escapade. She'll come to like him when she decides to get to know him. Not if you force her hand. Dearest Aunt Ada, I don't want you to know the details because I don't want you to be blamed. Oh. Marion. If you want to marry this man, then come out with it. Sit through the argument. Hold to your faith. And if he's right for you, eventually, it will come to pass. I haven't got time for eventually. You will break Agnes's heart. You know that's not true. It's her pride we're dealing with here, not her heart. I can't help blaming Mr. Riggs. Don't. We both wanted to wait until we had Aunt Agnes's blessing. But he hasn't waited. Has he, dear? Now, I hear what you're saying. But I think Ada is making a very valid point here. She gives the exact opposite advice to Marion here that Rakes sells Marion on. Once we do it, it'll force Agnes's hand. Ada has the right of it. If you force Agnes's hand, you'll never get her to come around. Out of spite, she will refuse. Rakes has not made his case. Where I, you know, When I got married years ago, I went and asked for my father-in-law-to-be's permission. I like that you said that in such a grandpa way. When I got married. <laughs> I, I I didn't need his permission. It was it was the 2000s. His manners, though. But it mattered that I had it. I wanted to cross my T's and dot my I's. Tom Rakes never came to the ants and said, I love this woman. It would make me, I know I am not rich. I know I don't have a name, but I will. I'm a lawyer in New York at the, at the turn in the Gilded Age. I'm going to make a fuck ton of money. And I love her. He never did that. He never did that. Marion never sat and told Agnes, I love this man. I want to marry him. She just tried to sell him as someone who could make it in society. They never gave Agnes the real shot to turn them down. I'm team Ada here. Ada has the right of this. They're handling it. The funny thing is, I haven't got time for eventually. It's always young people that think they don't have time for eventually. I know I sound like a super fucking grandpa right now. You do. But old people, <laughs> older people who have lived understand eventually. Young people who have their world in front of them and years and years, decades of life never have time for eventually. Marion, she has a line that she says to Larry. Larry said, when she hands the letters to Larry, Larry says, I hope this doesn't bespoke desperate action on your part. Her response is, action, yes, but not desperate. 
excuse me? Not desperate? The opening words of this scene was was her saying to, uh, to Mrs. Chamberlain, this makes no sense, but it's what we're going to do. That's the definition of desperate action. This entire bullshit plan is desperate action. It, it's all desperate action. <laughs> Can you guys imagine being Mike's kid? Excuse me. <laughs> You're true. so it's you're so funny. <laughs> I can just imagine you excuse me. <laughs> Very funny. Here's the thing. Youth is all about it being all fleeting and you know time is short. Now here is the the fact behind Marion. He said he won't wait. He said his his head is going to be turned by these sideshows and whatnot. Okay. Now I'm not saying okay. That's the guy you want to you want to hit your wagon to. Okay. The guy who's like all like uh, I'm tapping my toe because I'm like pretty much smelling another chick over here. Um, that's not the dude you want. But it's not fictitious that there's a timeline for Marion. She feels like she has to act because he said. If you don't act, I'm walking away. I understand recklessness of youth and desperation and this idea of being in love. That's why I, it's actually a really interesting conversation when she goes to his office later on and then sees him at the ball, which is really a continuation of the conversation. Well, let's play the two clips because this is the clip from the office and then the clip at the ball because – it's interesting how these two talk about love and what's real and what's true, uh, because I don't know that they actually understand those words really at all. I assume we're not getting married today. I have to stop. That is the funniest opening line to any conversation ever. I assume we're not getting married today. <laughs> it's about the most controlled version of that sentiment I've ever heard. I think if you're if the sentiment is I assume we're not getting married today, it's usually a lot more like you motherfucker. Like yeah. there's no there's not usually just like that that beautiful formality of it all. There's a whole conversation to be had about why this motherfucker's not bleeding from every orifice by the time she's done with him. And she's the way he hands handles it i mean there's the facts that they don't get married and then there's the way that tom handles it you know that is a whole different ball game i assume we're not getting married today marion just tell me was it all pretend no of course not i love you very much but as new york smiled on you you came to see that there were others who could offer you so much more than i could the truth is... I'll tell you what the truth is. The more you pushed for our elopement, the more you felt your desire for it slipping away. I suppose I thought that if I could only make it happen, then things would come right. But I began to suspect that if we did marry, we would have no armor for the battle that lay ahead. We'd have no money, you mean. We know New York now, you and I. There's a life to be lived here, and a good life. But two penniless strangers from out of town could not have hoped to live it. But Miss Bingham can make sure of that life for you. Well, why not? She won't suit the old crowd, but she'll do well enough with the new, and her fortune is more than ample for both of you. I don't admire myself for it. <laughs> On that note, I'll say goodbye. Can we at least part as friends? Not quite. But not as enemies either. I don't like bitterness. You're a marvelous person, Marion. Do you know that? I shall take it as my consolation prize. 
Man, I don't know about you, but I wish she had silver candlesticks in that purse of hers and just whacked the fuck out of him. That motherfucker, he needs to get bloody. Honestly, the, I think it was Aurora's line when she says, unless he's dead, <laughs> he should have sent a note. I mean, that's the truth of it. I was How like, mortifying for her to be in that drawing room with all these women, the closest women to her, really, honestly, truly, other than her aunts, and having to and, and dodge and, and, uh, and come up with excuses as, as they're trying to shake scent in her. I mean, they are essentially shaking her by the shoulders, giving her all these reasons why she has to finally face up and you know what she was paying attention because when she arrives in his office she knows she says and new york city slowly eroded and turned your head it she's saying to him exactly what he warned would happen happened it's such a huge sign of disrespect that he does not care about her reputation. He does not care about her relationships with these other women. Like, you know, obviously with Mrs. Chamberlain and everyone, like, she just looks like such a fool. Now, she's lucky Aurora and Ada and Mrs. Chamberlain all rally around her and, and are kind and to her. And that's, of course, Peggy. Peggy's always a rallier, though. She's always been supportive. But this group could have just turned on their heel and decided, you know what? We don't owe you support. We don't owe you anything. Like, this is an embarrassing thing, and you did it to yourself. And he didn't care. Honest to God, the worst part of this is not that they did not get married. The worst part is the way he treated her. You know, him sitting in and oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if you have this clip, but the whole the transport. Do you have that clip? What's the matter? Something I saw at the Academy last night. Marion should know about it. Are you going to tell me what it is? It won't bother you since you don't care for Mr. Rakes. He was there in the Drexel's box, which is next to ours. And he was talking. Well, he was more than talking to Miss Bingham. Do you know who I mean? Sissy Bingham? I don't think so. She's a niece of Henry Flagler. She's very rich. And? At one point, he leaned over and whispered in her ear while she was transported. And every minute after that, she clung to his arm. I see. Maybe I'm making too much of it. You're right. Marion should know. Will you tell her tonight? She needs to know sooner than that. I like that Ada doesn't blow up her spot here because she could tell Aurora, really, Ada has to appreciate that Aurora knows probably more than even Ada does about everything that's happening, or at least assume it, given how close Aurora and Marion have become over the course of the season. None of these women are giving out secrets or talking behind anyone's back they're not doing it to peggy they're not talking behind marion's back and they easily could in a gossip based world i like that i like the solidarity and the loyalty to her i appreciated how this was written because while the words sound so unfamiliar to our modern language saying you know he transported her and all mm. that and that's not the way we talk the looks on their faces and the the back and forth of it you could easily like you know if the local high school was going to be doing this as a play they would modernize it you know and they would have be like girl did you see you know oh you should have seen the look on her face like the back and forth like you got it though you understood like he's whispering in her ear she put her hand on his arm like it was like oh mm -mm, mm -mm, mm. now like, we got to see the scene terrible. play out 
And even if you hadn't, just listening to her words, if you're really paying attention, you would have all the image you needed. That when she says she was, whatever he whispered her, she was transported, that's such a wonderful image. You didn't even yeah. need to see them in the in the box canoodling to each other. Well, and I'm like, he transported her? Like, I'm like outraged over here, right? I'm like, he did not transport her. No, no. I am so pissed. Like, Tom, you are a dick. He's such a dick. He's he's such a dick. He's and out there transporting people, Mike. Let's, ah. listen, let's listen to this motherfucker coming up to her uh, at the ball. And I, I love Aurora. Aurora looked like she was about to take off her earrings and go do some shit to him. And I, you know, when she, she's like, I should have known you're fucking everywhere this year. You know, I love Aurora. Aurora really cemented her, her like, you know, ride or die friend status in this episode. But let's listen to Aurora, uh, Marion and Tom at the ball their final conversation i'm so sorry i didn't think you'd be here i assumed your aunt wouldn't allow it i wouldn't have come if i'd known had you decided to break your word did you know when we met in the park no and i meant it when i said i love you i believe you but love is not always enough Here's my issue. <laughs> I think they're taking the wrong lesson away from here. I named that clip lesson. Love is enough, you dummies. If you really are in love with someone, it is enough. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of what you assholes are done. It is enough. If you really love you someone, dummies. <laughs> it is enough. You've missed the point. He didn't really love you. He loved New York. Maybe he did in his mind. I think you're too young, both of you, to understand what love is. It was your first experience with it. So I don't – I think it's a word you've heard used until so you're applying it to this. Maybe infatuation. Maybe first love. But not real love and certainly not more than he loved fame and possibility of riches and the fortune that Bingham uh, could bring to him and what society. He loves all of that more. So, no, Marion, love is enough. It is. I hate this idea that she's going to go forward and think that it's not. That's how you become Ada, and that's how you become Agnes, certainly, because Agnes made decisions for her family that were not based in love. I don't know that we want to have to have gone through what Agnes went through. George and Bertha love each other. They also have fame, and they also have money, but they love each other. Love is enough upon which it all else is built. It's the wrong lesson. It broke my heart. I listened to it more. I listened back to it so much. And I was like, ah, it is enough. You're going to live 30 years from now. You're going to look back and you're going to be like, I was a dummy when I said love isn't always enough. It is. It should be. It should be, but I will give some credence to the concept that the desire to be together isn't always enough. Yes. There has to be the logistics behind it. There has to be the commitment behind it. You can love someone and be unreliable and be not there when you should be. And still your heart of hearts can say, I really do love and care about this person, but, but – that's all we really have to say because then all the reasons come behind it, whatever your personal situation is. And so love isn't enough. Commitment has to be there. Trust has to be there. These two never had trust. No. And and certainly Tom never had commitment. So love in itself, that just overwhelming, 
pure, you know, I just want to spend time with you kind of love is not enough to form an actual relationship that can move forward. I don't understand for the life of me, and I know we've seen lots of theories about what Tom perhaps has access to when it comes to this railroad, you know, I'm not going to say everything because I don't know. They're all just these, these little theories that are floating around that maybe there's something more to money and Mr. Rakes and Marion and that somehow he needed to nab her in order to do something with this. What I do know is that this man has never made any sense about how fast he wanted to move forward to marriage. It has never made any sense. His brazen attitude of going out in society when he knows he knows where Aurora's box is and he knows where he's going to be sitting and he knows everyone talks and he still does this stuff like I didn't know you were going to be at the ball across the street from your house so I went like he's that brazen just to not stay home for a night stay home for one night coming with the flagler family like henry flagler real dude real life real rich guy like you can't you can't live oh no my ex my the girl i was engaged to as of this morning lives across the street from that house party yeah, i can't but go. it was hours mike really just a period of hours right, right. well by the time she tracked him down right because she had been waiting for hours <laughs> in the chamberlain's drawing yeah. room oh, I, what a dick. I, he's such I mean, a dick So the whole love, whether love is enough or not, you're 100 percent right. These two were never in love. And so when they had this conversation of was it all pretend? Did you know in the park? You know, all this kind of thing. You're so right. You were 100 percent right when you say that they never had trust with each other. When she starts that conversation with Mrs. Chamberlain and saying this plan makes no sense, but it's what we're doing. When she tells uh, Peggy originally that they're that she's finally going to go ahead. And Peggy's response is, well, it's a plan. You know, this idea of we're just going to fuck it. We're just going to do it. You know, fuck it. We'll do it live. You know, like we made a decision. That was Peggy saying, well, you've made a decision. Right. No, at no point has Marion said to anyone, including herself, I am excited about this elopement plan. I am looking forward to it. How about I love Tom or look at Tom and say, I love you. Like, I don't remember any of that. No. No, how many times he said it to her and she just kind of sighed. She'd say something like, well, well, that's all right with me or something like that. And you're like, wait, what, girl? (laughs) Love it. So, the, so at the end of the day, it's a question of was it all pretend? Did you ever really love me? These are questions that are going to haunt Marion, and they're gonna they're going to taint, probably in a bad way, going forward relationships that she has. This, this is a woman who is at too young of an age, experienced the worst kind of heartbreak. It's going to be hard for her, and I give credit to whoever gets through to her heart and makes her actually love and feel again. Because going into season two, the way this episode ends now, I- I'm curious if you were su- were you surprised that she told Larry the story? We didn't see her tell him, but we know in the morning when he walks her back across the street, they're talking about. It, so she has confided into him, uh, in with him what happened with Mr. Rakes. Are you surprised that she told him? These two haven't spent that much time on screen together. 
Maybe from the standpoint of actually this time in history and the formality of like not airing dirty laundry and and that type of thing. If you take it like now, no, I mean he had she had already trusted him to be the deliverer of the letters. Now, now that's an interesting thing that we were just talking about. Her and Tom never had any trust. Her and Larry are actually starting with trust. She trusted him to bring those letters and trusted for him to not read them or blow up her spot. She she trusted that he would go at the right time that he wouldn't be um you know pulling an armstrong ripping open her stuff none of those things so i feel like it's a great way to uh to sort of lay that foundation that by the end of the evening which hello the sun had already come up like this was a rave man this was quite a party i think you would have had this entire oh my god just ringer of emotions that you had gone through that you would say can you believe this guy did this like this is so insane i can't believe this even happened which i do want to remind everybody at the beginning of all of this i really feel that marion was hanging on to rakes because he was from doylestown he was from her father's town he was her father's lawyer she was still grieving the loss of her dad and i think that we cannot forget that there's a portion of this just attachment to him that comes from her old life and feels so comfortable he was her protector in Doylestown when her father died. He's the one who was to tell her where to go and what to do next. I think there was some misapplied love or trust or anything in him because of the loss of her dad. I'm willing to say that really Rake's story with her is not only her first love and or relationship or whatever we're going to call it, but also it was it was in a small quiet grieving of her dad and leaving behind of her old life and now she is willing to throw in with ada and agnes and aurora and mrs chamberlain and be all in in new york city and larry for that matter because she throughout these nine episodes have has been able to let go of doylestown aka mr rakes i love it i mean it's a very phoenix kind of thing right you have to be reborn in the ashes and the fire and and you know to be stronger on the other end of it i like that you brought up that she's starting from a place of trust with larry because you have to that it's going both ways that's mutual larry didn't have to tell her about her about his architect dreams she didn't hold a gun to his head when they ran into each other outside of stanford white's office a couple of episodes ago he chose to trust her with that information information that could get him in trouble before he revealed it himself but he trusted her and she gave him good advice she was a good friend to him she even he credits her in this episode right right after she gives him the letters uh, and they have the conversation about desperate action oh really uh anyway <laughs> um when they get in the carriage George says to Larry, uh, they're having a conversation about Miss Brooke and how she has a determined mind, and he credits her with convincing Larry to tell George about his plans to be an architect, which leads to that great line with Larry says, you know, I think you're going to be happy with my choice. This is a great time and a great country, and I want to be a part of it. George is happy, I think, at the end of the season, or at least proud of his son for taking a stand that seems like he has thought of it. Larry's crediting Marion with with a lot of that spine and giving him the courage to do that. These two are starting with mutual place of trust. I really like it. 
There's something special about young people um, when you're getting started with Peggy and Marion, Larry, Gladys, Carrie even, where there's a fast trust between two people. You can become fast friends because you're struggling so hard and you have all these adults who are against you and trying to tell you what to do. There's almost this like our gang kind of feel where it's like we need to just gather together really quickly and just having another person, your peer, Carrie, say, I have a guy I'm in love with who, who, you know, nobody wants me to be with that kind of stuff. When you share, they share so quickly. It's like women in the ladies room. Like we share so quickly and we are like best friends from there on out. There's just something about the like rawness and the lack of support from all the adults that you just kind of cling to each other. And you can see that between Peggy and Marion. You can see that between Larry and Marion of like, nobody else is even listening to us in our lives. Lives, we can come together and, and support each other. And that's all we need to kind of be brave enough to take the next step. Having this discussion, thinking about Larry and, and Marion and that level of trust and where these young people go together. Just again, talking about the bookend from episode nine and back to episode one, we talked about the opening and closing scenes. But there's this conversation that Marion, when she breaks the rules back in episode one and goes across the street to Bertha's poorly attended uh, housewarming that she has, Marion is there and she, Gladys and Larry had this conversation. Larry has this little snippet that he says to her that was a little cheesy, and I think we maybe even had a little bit of fun with it back in episode one, but now gone through this journey and where these two are ending and the, and the trust that they're placing with each other and what, what that may signal for season two, and even if they don't put them together, which I'm not against, I, I like these two young kids who, who may do it for love above all else, because love should be enough, at least as friends, they seem like they're building a good foundation here. Let's listen to this clip. This is from way back in episode one. Let the three of us be friends, in spite of everything. Contramundum. Contramundum, bitches! Like, he's setting the table way back in episode one. It's us against the world. Like, we we three young people on this block of old people, in this, in this world dominated by old people and old rules, let us stay together and have a bond. That's way back in episode one. I love that. Aren't you feeling like a total like John Hughes kind of thing? You know, like it's like teenagers who don't normally click together, teenagers who don't even hang together normally, but you get but you get together and you have those moments of just bonding and you kind of you feel that like real fast friends. It's something that goes throughout the ages. Like it doesn't it's not 1988 or whatever, but you can feel it. You know, you can feel this same like, God, my parents don't listen to me. You know, I don't know how much money, but maybe all of it I would give to have seen last. Harry walk back across the street and pump his fist in the air like the end of Breakfast Club. Don't you, you know, forget you about me. you also see him asking <laughs> for Marion's panties and holding them up in a bathroom somewhere, though, too? Like, Marion would also be, you know, the the Molly Ringwald of it all, right? You can feel our coming, you know, we're all sort of having that same teenage angst here. Even though, again, people have asked, how old are these? is this group? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, so Louisa Jacobson, who plays Marion, is 30, but she's not playing. I don't think she's playing 30, but I think she is actually much older than we originally thought. Originally, I, th I thought that her and Gladys were just within a year or two of each other. Gladys being in like the 17, 18 range, like a little bit older than she should have been for Deb. Marion being in like the 19, 20 range. But I feel like Marion maybe is more like 22, 23, 24. So hard because then you get to that whole life expectancy is 
41 in New York City at this time. So, right. mm, well, remember, I, remember that suitor who came for Gladys's hand, uh, Archie, who George was like 26. Rel- or he was he was 24. We thought he was an old dog. He was pointedly 24, and he made a point of saying that was the age at which his father had married his mother, and that's why he's it's on his mind now. He has a job. He's working as an investment banker. He's approaching middle age, and that's he's following <laughs> his father's footsteps. But 24, right. it's especially for a woman, like it doesn't. It's not very long before you're Ada, right? I mean that mm-hmm. that was the significance. We were talked about it in the Edison episode back in episode seven. The significance of marrying turning around while her aunts are drooling on themselves, sleeping on the couch while the world changes outside, <laughs> is she's looking at her future. I mean, but it's, then let's. But then please apply that same film over the top of that conversation we had at the beginning of this of, of you saying like, well, Ada's advice of just sitting around and eventually Agnes will come around and all that stuff. There's no time. You die by the time you're 41. Like there's no all this extra. You have decades to come into your own. You know, you truly don't. You just said 24 was midlife. I mean, there really isn't a lot of time. All I can think about is is Larry saying to Marion, Blaine, it's not a name. That's an appliance. <laughs> but like rakes, rakes, that's not a name. That's a gardening tool. That's all See? I can think about. But do you feel like, I mean, Larry's a little or ducky in some ways, no? Like he's like the guy who, who's like super cute and like has his own ideas. God, when we get, when we interview him uh, next season. Let's I'm... start weaving this. We should weave the John Hughes and the, and the Gilded Age gang. Any we'll have to come up list- with a name. Any creative <laughs> listeners out there. It's like the high tea club instead of the breakfast yeah. club. <laughs> yes. They all meet in Chamberlain's uh, Chamberlain's drawing room yes. for detention. Yes. yes. I love it. Yes. Any creative listeners See? out there, make a Breakfast Club poster, but using the young people from the Gilded Age, please. It's like when the principal comes in and like just shakes his head because he doesn't but even Agnes. know what the hell's going on. Agnes goes, it's no. like I'm watching a play in a foreign language. Like, right. it was like the same thing. Like, I'm an adult and I have no idea what y'all are doing or, you know, where you're at. <sighs> so much, so much. <laughs> Oh, like, very good writing. Very universal themes here that we're we're banging on. I've again, I've seen this episode several times now, and I'm still getting as upset about the <laughs> the the, sh- the stupidity of youth and and how they don't understand love. I mean, it's a credit to the writing because it's so real. Because we were all young once, and so we all went through it. And now I'm old and crunchy and and gray, <laughs> and I see how dumb it all is. Like, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> That's actually, I'm actually doing an impression from the producers, but it's pretty dead on though. Anyway. It still makes you laugh very much. I I love it when you get all riled. Like it's like my favorite version of you is riled Mike. Another teenager who was having a moment in this episode was Carrie, uh, Mrs. Astor's daughter, who, I, you know, I'm glad we had the discussion last week about how Mrs. Astor deals with Carrie in, in an unexpected way and doesn't go at her with the hardness that you would expect someone like Mrs. Astor to go, because that continues in this episode. I mean, despite the, the this line aside. Caroline! She doesn't really yell at her daughter, and she even says towards the end of it, I don't have your father. He's always on his boat. I only have you. The other kids are, you know, not around. I mean, we saw them one episode, but, I mean, her other four kids that Mrs. Astor has, we don't see them. We We see Carrie. And so we have this clip kind of at the beginning of the episode sets a tone again about how these two deal with each other and how Carrie doesn't take her mother's shit. Oh, Caroline. There's a letter for you. Hefty gave it to me. Who is it from? 
Mrs. Russell. Uh, I suppose it was the invitation to her wretched ball. No. It was to explain why I would not be sent an invitation. What? She says I can't come and I can't dance because you would not receive her when she called. She came at an inconvenient moment. She says someone else was admitted. That was Mrs. Randolph. She wanted to see me alone. What was I to do? And would you call on Mrs. Russell now, if I asked you? I'm sure she's far too busy to waste her time on me. But that's not true, is it? I'm sorry? You wouldn't call on her if your life depended on it. I worked on the dance for weeks. Did you think of that? You must have known she dropped me when you wouldn't let her into the house. My dear. I'm going upstairs. Carrie? Caroline! No other child is going to speak to their parent in this show. Oscar's not going to speak this way to Agnes. Larry or Gladys are not going to speak this way to, to George or Bertha. I like Carrie a lot. I, I This character came on late in the season for me, but I like everything about her. I like her ballsiness, the way she, she understands what this world is in a way all the other young people don't really get it. I enjoy the relationship between... Carrie and Lena very much because it was so unexpected. I am hearkening back to our conversation with Julian about uh, Jay Gould and his relationship with his kids and that he actually was a really warm-hearted father to his children. And that little nugget that he hung on to a lot. I mean, we've heard him say it in our, our interview and talking with him, but then also in other people's interviews that he continues to discuss Jay Gould and and that I think that the parent-child relationship, he's wanting to rewrite a little bit, like historically speaking, because we only think of it as um, you know, this really stiff, really firm, really stern parents all the time. And we have that in some ways. I mean, we have Bertha saying, don't you tell me I can't. You know, we have those representative or Agnes saying, you know, like I asked you to do something, you just do it. 90% of the parents are probably that way. But it it really is striking that Mrs. Astor, the Mrs. Astor, has this capacity to be able to have a much more tender relationship with Caroline be able to listen to her and actually care enough to like bend her own rules to make things work out with her. So everything with her, I like, you're right. I like Carrie herself. She definitely seems like she has been groomed to be the next Mrs. Astor. This, the part that really struck me is when I think it's Hefty who's saying she's not going to eat. She wants to trade her her room. Should I tell her to come down here, basically? And I liked that she kind of bristled at Hefty and was like, no, if she asked you, like, like kind of like separating the help from herself and Carrie is like, no, if she asked you to do something, then you do it. You don't you don't you're not going to go up there and coerce someone who is essentially going to become your boss. No, you don't do that. You go take her to the tray, you know, and, and, and right. she doesn't, she kind of maintains that hierarchy in her own household by not belittling Carrie. I think that's also demonstrating a level of respect for Carrie, that Carrie, Carrie can make her own decisions whether I agree with them or not. She's, I'm allowing her to be mad at me without bringing down the hammer on her. I was listening to this comedian and he was talking about how he's trying to watch the way that he talks to his daughter because you're essentially teaching your child how other people should treat them. Mm -hmm. So he'll say like he, and it was a joke. So he was like, you know, get your butt down here and bring me your phone and blah, blah, blah. And then he paused and goes, is something that only your father could say. And a boyfriend should never talk to you like that. <laughs> yes. Like, but, but that's the thing. If you teach your children, you have to bend to 
everything and be submissive and be yelled at. And then all of a sudden when they're 18 or 20 or 25 or whatever, and they're in their first serious relationships and their partner yells at them like that, they have no coping mechanisms. They have no way to know, hey, that's actually not a good relationship that you're in now because you guys are peers. Very tricky, right? But I appreciate that Mrs. Astor stopped Hefty and said, no, if she told you to do something, you do it. And like, we're going to maintain that level of respect between all of us. And so I'm going to show respect to Carrie so that Carrie expects respect as the next Mrs. Astor. Really good parenting there, but tricky parenting. It's, a, it's actually a great point that I hadn't really focused on, but but you're right. It would be easy to to write her as someone who was just an autocrat saying it's my way or the highway because she has this conversation later with Carrie about a test of wills between Mrs. Astor, the Mrs. Astor, and Bertha. And Carrie doesn't genuflect at her mother's feet. Let's listen to this clip. May I come in? Why do you bother to ask if you're going to push in anyway? How long will you keep this up? I could ask you the same question. Suppose I were to call on Mrs. Russell and explain that I'm engaged tomorrow night. Are you? I can be necessary. She won't accept it. The trouble is you assume she's weaker than you. She is weaker than I am in this instance. We'll see. That we'll see. It's like topic. I love it. And again, she's not she's not bowing and scraping at her mother's feet. She's telling your her mother, this woman who this most important woman in society, which Carrie appreciates. Carrie understands it because when Carrie shows up and is talking to Gladys and Bertha finds them, Bertha and Carrie have a big girl conversation that Gladys is not a part of about you understand why you can't be at the ball and Carrie's like, yeah, my mom's a bitch and she, she's causing all this. I get it. Would you, would you allow me to come if she apologizes to you? She gets how this whole society thing works in a way that Gladys and Larry question Bertha at the table about. Um, but Carrie gets it. And even here, she's saying you're, you're undercutting and underestimating Bertha and you're going to regret it. She's giving her fair warning here. Again, I think most people, especially with Mrs. Astor, Ward, I don't think Ward McAllister would necessarily talk to his Mystic Rose in this way so bluntly. He gives her frank advice later, but very much from the how it helps you. Carrie's just like, you're wrong and you're not weak. You're weaker than Bertha in this. In this. That's huge. I, that's a huge clip for me. It's all... So unexpected. Who knew that like a young person would be the one to, to turn the tide? In many ways, you know, it's it's old rules, new money. But in another way, it's like old generation, new generation or something. You know, like there's like Carrie's not new money, but she is bringing in different ideas and pushing the envelope. Most people know at this point that are watching the show. This is based on this entire plot line, the ball, the the snub, Carrie's snub to it, Mrs. Astor having to go and and make things right is all based on Alva Vanderbilt, who had been snubbed by uh, the Mrs. Astor because she was Vanderbilt money. She was having a uh, costume ball for a housewarming at her ginormous Fifth Avenue house. Uh, Carrie wanted an invitation, expected an invitation. She's Carrie 
you know, asked her. And she wasn't given one because her mother had refused to call on Alva Vanderbilt. Because of that, the same reason Bertha gives, I can't have you in my house because your mother won't do me the respect of calling on me and, you know, giving me a little respect here, some basic respect. And so forcing Mrs. Astor to go to Alva Vanderbilt's house and and make things right, just how it plays out here. Uh, here it's a coming out ball for Gladys. There it's a costume housewarming party. But it's the same story. Uh, Mrs. Astor goes and does something that she doesn't want to do. In part because of her daughter, though I'm curious if you think in the end of the day, did Gladys, did Bertha do what she did for Gladys or for herself? Does Mrs. Astor ultimately go to Bertha for love of her daughter or so she doesn't get shut out of the society that she spent so much time building? Oh, I think none of it is either or. I mean, Bertha benefits from Gladys and this relationship that she's formed with Carrie Astor, a hundred million percent. The Mrs. Astor has her own empire to protect. And so she has to be thoughtful. But then they both have their relationships with their daughters and how that they are presented in society. And again, that whole thing about respect for the daughters, like you can't treat the daughters like crap and expect the rest of the society to respect them. You have to have some level of respect and say, if this is how, you know, like you need to come out, Gladys, and you need to do this properly and you need to have the right people at your party. So let's figure out how to do that. And and there is that give and take that, again, I think that in today's society, we don't really have that. Like, I think parents are pretty iron fist and like they're kind of like, you know what, you do what I say. But then also when you when you become an adult and you move out of my house, suddenly be able to stand on your own two feet and be able to have a backbone of your own, even though I've spent the last 18 years telling you to just do what you're told. That's really rough. So these women, I see them, you know, running the show a little bit differently and saying like, oh, man, I, they're at some level. I have to work with you in order to get what you want so that you can become like, you know, respected women in society. Is that fair, do you think? Oh, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think I, I think you're 100% right. You get what I'm saying, though, right? Yeah, it's yeah. so easy just to say, do what I told you to do. And then how many kids do we know? And we'll exclude our own children. Let's pretend that they do, they do not exist. We certainly know that children out there are anxious have a rough time making decisions on their own, are forever nervous about making us disappointed or disappointing anyone for that matter. And it's like, what role did we play as parents if we were like, I know the way and I don't want you to make mistakes. And so in that case, I'm going to tell you what to do. These women, Bertha, really walked the line here because she was really with Oliver, you don't tell me can't and you don't do this. I mean, they were doing that, but we saw the change in them. We saw even with George and Larry, we saw him, like you said, have pride in Larry for standing up to him. Like, okay, I raised a man who could speak up. Right. That makes me proud. Well, even Gladys at the end, and she, not that she stands up to yeah. her mother, but Gladys stands up to Oscar and says, I'm out now and I'm done being told what to do. Yeah. Weren't you kind of like really proud for her? I was, I was, and, she, and she's her also, little face. Oh my god, yeah. how Jennifer Love Hewitt did her little face look like when when she had that wig on and her hair was kind of out of her way yeah. because her hair was been kind of it was like it was like time. Amadeus cosplay from yeah. like that. Like, but yeah. her little like angelic elfy face yes. turned into like a much more like womanly face, and I was like, "You go, Gladys! Like, come on, you've got this." Yes. So a great use of costume and and hairstyling in this yeah. episode with Gladys. The the literal transformation of her coming 
coming out and uh, like emerging like a butterfly kind of Which thing. Which we had looked forward to. I was like, when are we going to have our ticker like a metaphorical glasses and um, overalls off and stop with the frizzy hairdo and start getting some smooth, you know, adult looking wig going on. I say wig for hair, everyone. I don't mean actual wig. Though, uh, though I imagine that was a wig she was wearing in her oh, Amadeus it costume. Was a wig. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm no hair expert, but uh, let's <laughs> let's talk about Bertha's role in this whole thing and her orchestrating with Carrie because I think the show does a great job of Bertha being very consoling to Carrie, but also never budging from her. I think in the same way, a lot of people were expecting Marion to just beat the shit out of Rakes because it would make us all feel better. I think coming off of the indignity last week of being thrown out of uh, Beechwood out of uh, the Newport house, the the Astor's Newport house, um, that she'd come with like lasers coming out of her eyes this week. And this episode actually starts with her being facing indignity again at the hands of Hefty and the Astors, right? Because she has to sit in her carriage while Hefty is telling her Mrs. Astor's not home while Mrs. Randolph walks in the house. She's sitting right there watching the indignity of it all. You know, I give Bertha a lot of credit because she doesn't go barging in. She has impulse control, which has been one of our themes of these characters this whole season. She goes and puts every single detail in her letter to carry your mother did this to me your mother did that to me your mother made me watch and but she admitted someone and was and told me she wasn't home that's a savage move and super classy in in one way but also real knives out in another way i loved it i loved learning that she put that level of detail in her note to carry <laughs> sometimes you have to you have to provide the ammo right to your enemy to kind of <laughs> create the argument for well, her. Well, she I, had she had Carrie on the hook. She had oh, Carrie yeah. on the hook. Right? How many weeks spent doing this quadril? She's fostered a relationship with Gladys. I mean, this is like a real friendship. She allowed her to have the guy that she was interested in be her partner mm -hmm. at the quadril. So this was all about you know getting everyone can get what they want provided your mother bends on this old arm very well played She's very do, well played do a little square dancing with old arm there let's listen to <laughs> bertha and mrs astor note that this scene and i don't know if i have it in the clip the scene starts with bertha saying ha please have a seat to mrs astor neither of them ever sit they have this entire conversation standing which is a great way to start this game of chicken that these two are engaged in well i have paid a call now you have dropped by at a time when no one else was likely to be here. Won't you consider letting Carrie be included in the fun after all? Would you come with her? It is such a difficult time of year for If me. you wish for me to bring your very charming daughter back into the fold, then you must accompany her. My being here now is not enough. People know of the snub. So to undo the hurt, you must attend the ball tonight, and you must let people know you will be here. You will need to move quickly. I don't have time to do that. Oh, I think you do. And I have one more request. I want you to ensure that my neighbors, Mrs. Van Ryan and her sister, will attend. Why bother with them? I'm tired of being cut on my own doorstep. Make them come. I don't see how. Then you will have to explain it to Carrie. I like her very much, by the way. I'm sorry she won't be here. Well, at least we know where we stand. Nothing would give me more pleasure than for you to change your mind. But you will not change yours. No. Mrs. Astor is leaving.
goddamn flex. Mrs. Astor is leaving, though. Oh, yeah. She totally walks over and, like, hits the little bell, like, while she's still talking. Like, it is so subtle. And then it's just, like, the way that, you know, he, like, pops in and it's church. And she's like, burnt out. And it's like, this conversation is over. I love her adding in making Agnes and Ada come. Yes, she has a great reason. I'm tired of being cut on my every time I walk out my front door, which is a great line. But it's also such a power flex. Like, this is a woman who is beyond and done taking your bullshit, Mrs. Astor. Like, it is it, the, uh, the house of the rising Bertha is here. It is Bertha season, you know, like, and, and you, you best get on board or you're going to be left behind kind of thing. She has all of the courage that she needs to have here. And now when you watch Bannister come in and tell, not Bannister, when Church comes in and tells her, Mrs. Astor is in the hall, you know, and, and he's having a fucking freak out. He almost passes out. Like, he doesn't know what to say. There's a great still shot of Church standing there receiving Mrs. Astor's card, and he's just like like a deer in the headlights you know she gathers herself she doesn't rush she doesn't lose her head she doesn't run around like propping up pillows or making sure she lives her life ready for this moment she takes a deep breath and she goes to fucking work and i love it there's one line reading in there that carrie coon absolutely nails when uh mrs astor says oh i don't have time to do any of that and she says oh you do I think you do. It's 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 so sing-songy. It's like a stiletto knife, like encased in maple syrup. It is, it's, oh, it's so wonderful. It's, it's very so wonderful. Carrie Coon too. I mean, I have loved Carrie since she was on The Leftovers, and she has always had a way, even as Nora, where she can just look so seriously, and the person can deny her, and she can say, "Oh no, I believe you can do this. Yeah, go ahead now, like do what I said." There's and a it's real like, blending ooh. of the character again, Carrie Coon in this. In the show i think love it i love it i love it so much and you know mrs astor knows she her her daughter's warning of we'll see has come to pass and she has to now go to ward what did you think of this conversation between uh, ward and mrs astor he's not quite as blunt as carrie is but he's basically giving the same advice that we've heard a couple other times we have to let pe- the we have to let some new money in or else they will rise up against us and we'll be on the outs let's listen to ward's uh discussion with mrs astor about standards but if i don't maintain standards what is the point of me of course But what we need to determine now is whether Mrs. Russell will support those standards or undermine them. How can you ask? You know I follow your lead to a slavish degree. But you want to go to the ball. We cannot hope to keep out the new people entirely or they'd form their own society that would exclude us. You know this. Yes, And if it looks as if her children might make decent marriages... They'll make decent marriages without our help. They're good-looking and they smell of money. The sweetest scent I know. If I were you, I'd bring him in now and gain the credit. But it's tonight. Send a note to her this minute. And another to Agnes Van Ryan. Then write to anyone else you can think of. You mean you don't think that I can beat Mrs. Russell at my own game? My dear Mystic Rose. I fear if you try, it might be at the cost of your own dignity. Which translated means you want to go to her ball. 
I love that laugh at the end. <laughs> I do want to go to the ball. But your dignity, Mystic Rose, your dignity. <laughs> it's so funny. They're talking about maintaining your dignity when she has literally been shoveling shit in Bertha's mouth. And and Ward, too. Ward's the one who had her thrown out unceremoniously from the house last week. Uh, let's talk about dignity and maintaining dignity. My lord. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were going into me. I think about my impersonation of a Southern person. No, 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 no. I'm personally offended that you dropped calling me Mystic Rose. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to that? I thought that that was the agreed upon thing. (laughs) Stop it. Uh, In a a great piece of editing, this is one of my favorite scenes, just because of how it was put together. You have this uh, mother-daughter moment of victory and defeat. I don't, I don't know if, if it hit you or just struck you, but there's a great juxtaposition here of Mrs. Astor telling Carrie to come watch her defeat, and it cuts back and forth with Bertha coming and telling Gladys, witness my victory, that Carrie will be there and all of your friends will be able to come. It's a great moment of editing. It was – we storyline moved it along, right? Bertha wins. She's already won here. I mean, yes, Mr. As- Mrs. Astor has to show up to the ball later on but that's really whipped cream and cherries and hot fudge on the sunday she's won in this moment and the show does a great job of editing with the mothers and the daughters witnessing their respective victories and defeats just just a great little bit of of putting the show together i want to jump into the ball because bertha and mrs astor have one moment together during the ball where they really finish this conversation about winning and losing and uh, it's a great exchange. And it's a great exchange because I think it really sets up what season two has to be about for these characters. Uh, let's take a listen to uh, the I Will Destroy You clip. Didn't it ever worry you that I might decide to destroy you after this evening? Because I could if I chose. I don't doubt it, but you won't. <laughs> Why not? Because we're too alike. Well, what? It's true. And I will be a good friend to you if you will let me. This sounds like you, dear Mystic Rose Caroline. This is the kind of advice that I feel like I've heard you give to people. You could destroy me, but... Keep me close, and I will be a good friend to you. Not unlike the genie in Aladdin. Right, right. You've never had a friend like me. I'm not sure if I ever admit to the you could destroy me. I think I keep that part in my head. But I definitely am a better friend than an enemy by far. Uh, You don't want me as your enemy. So, yeah, I agree. (laughs) But I think you're the exact same way. I mean, I think that there's something about having a little bit of charm and, and being someone who's like, you know what? I can pull strings. And I've displayed to you that I can pull strings. So how about we pull strings together rather than I'm over here pulling and you're over here Poland. Like, let's not do tug of war. Let's just pull strings together. I think that, man, that, again, advice for the ages. I will definitely tell people that I will destroy you. And I don't, I I don't (laughs) offer my friendship. I will just, I leave it at, I will destroy you. Please shut the fuck up. So I I am not about extending friendship. You should have realized that before you maybe say that I will destroy you. So it's it's a a little bit of a, a little bit of the other end of it. But I, you know, I, again, if the series ended here, this is a complete story. Now, I think this exchange of, aren't you worried that I could destroy you? Because I could. 
maybe I will tomorrow. And, and, and Bertha's not blinking. She's done blinking. She's done playing this game of chicken. She says, you could, but you won't. We're, when she says we're too much alike, I thought Mrs. Astor was going to choke and like vomit all over that beautiful dress she was wearing. By the way, made her look like a queen. She looked like a queen. I, the costuming in this episode is out of this world. But the way they did her up with Carrie being so cutting edge with her fashion, but Mrs. Astor looking literally like an American queen has come to the ball. I like I legit gasped when I saw Caroline Astor's dress like that black with the gold like i was like i love that dress i would wear that dress i love her necklace like i love everything about this look and beautiful and like you said i'm just royal you know like she she just oh she looked fantastic uh let's talk about a little bit about the ball itself um, because beyond the Mrs. Astor stuff, Carrie, I keep saying Carrie because of Carrie Coon, because we were talking about the actress, uh, <laughs> Bertha has to, beyond dealing with Mrs. Astor and all of that nonsense, she still has to rally her, her family troops a little bit. I thought she was a little cavalier with how she broke the news about Carrie not being or being disinvited to the ball. Let's listen here, because I think this is a little, a little light on mom tact. How's the ball coming along, mother? That reminds me. I'm afraid we must ask Carrie Astor to step down. What? It won't be possible for her to perform the dance. Why not? Because it won't be possible for me to invite her to the ball. What are you saying? I looked in on Mrs. Astor today and she wouldn't accept my call. I told you. But I can't have her daughter here when she doesn't receive me. Perhaps she wasn't there. A friend of hers was admitted just as I was leaving. They've been practicing for weeks. Why didn't you say this sooner? It never occurred to me Mrs. Astor would let Carrie dance at the ball if she didn't plan to come herself. But, Mother, Orrin Wilson's Carrie's partner. It's all arranged. I can't help that. What about the others? Angela Skirmerhorn, Sally Drexel, the boys? Are they all to be turned away if their parents won't come? I'm afraid so. Mother, you can't pull the rug from under them now. You will not say can't to me. Why shouldn't the girl come on her own if she wants to? And the rest of the young people, too. And do you think Mrs. Astor would entertain a young woman whose mother had snubbed her? Precisely. That sigh says everything at the end there. They know she's right, or at least George knows she's right. Heart feelings as much as it is, she's doing the right thing for the family at this point. It was the perfect response. Like, do you think if the if the table was turned, you know, would she be would she be cool with this? And that was like, ooh, because then you are asking her to basically lower the bar, lower right. than Mrs. Astor's bar, and that's not acceptable. So it's it not. was so clear cut at that point. It was like there's nothing to argue about. And I like that she snaps back at Larry, like you don't tell me. <laughs> it very, it was very John Locke from Lost, like don't tell me what I can't do. You know, very. Larry has to watch how he talks to his mother a little bit. I, we, we've been giving Larry a lot of credit uh, with being bold and standing up to his father and talking about his feelings. But I'm still a little sore, Larry, about the uh, the potato farmer comment yeah. from several episodes ago. And now telling his mother, like, Larry, you're going to find yourself like over her knee getting spanked. <laughs> No, agree, especially because the rest of the time Larry actually comes off as as I don't want to say meek. That's that's probably too strong, but actually as a very thoughtful, conscientious kind of person who wouldn't be the type of person to call someone a name. Not misogynistic. And no, and the way he talks not, to his mother has the, Right. And the way he talks to his mother has a little bit a little air of misogyny to it. But he's not like that with anyone else, any other female that we see in the show. So but, fascinating. And he's a supporter of Gladys, so go figure. 
And, and, and it's not like it's a learned behavior because George doesn't speak to Bertha that way either. George never tells Bertha, you're, be a good little woman and mind the wisdom. It's a, it's a weird dynamic that we've seen a couple of flashes of, but she doesn't take his shit. And when she needs to, she snaps him back. And I, I'm glad that she did here. Uh, let's talk about George for a second because, you know, there has been a lot of tension in the marriage as, as Bertha has become closer to Ward about split priorities and there was a lot in leading up to the the train investigation and all of that we've highlighted some some stress in the marriage but george has been paying attention to the rules of society and to the lessons that his wife has been trying to teach him i love this little exchange between george and clay early in the episode ninesberg and kuiper want to extend their loan by how much they want another million in a year longer to repay, same terms. There's nothing wrong with the bank, is there? Not that I'm aware of, but we'll look into it. It's flattering that the great Julius Kuiper should come with his begging bowl. Is he so very great? His wife is. They say even Mrs. Astor treats her with care. <laughs> I don't know about such things. If you lived with Mrs. Russell, you would. See, imagine George sitting there gossiping about these society women with Clay. Clay is like, "What are you even talking about? I need right. to go home to my TV dinner and 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 sit and listen to I don't know music on a phonograph or something." Like Clay is not in society, but here's George like, "Oh, Mrs. Astor treats her like royalty." Like George, Clay is the wrong the wrong audience. You need to go find Miss Ainsley or a replacement for her. I think uh, you know you need someone to to chit chat and girl talk about because Clay is not in. But I was proud of him though for understanding how it works what did you think when he goes and he basically uses the loan with kuiper to force the hand uh he kind of does the same thing with stanford right where he he early in the show in episode one he makes stanford come to the housewarming gifts uh housewarming party so that there's someone there here george uses really loses uses the leverage this bank is going to probably fail if it doesn't get this million dollar extension loan from George's firm. Sure, you can have the loan, but you and your wife need to clear your calendars and come. And step further, if you don't, I am going to go tell all the rest of your potential lenders why you are a bad person to lend to. <gasps> I mean, talk about over a barrel. Like, yeah. this guy has no choice. I will ruin you. It's phone work. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I will ruin. It's the alderman. I will fucking ruin you if you don't do what I want you to to make my wife happy. That's a I mean, badass hubby that goes to the mattresses like that. Total I, I, respect. George George has maintained his allegiance to Bertha and and her cause. You know, there's been times when, yes, it has been getting under his skin. There's times when he's got his own stuff going on that he doesn't want to hear about it. But at the end of the day, he respects this agenda and he understands it and he does everything he can to further it for her. There's a great uh, little end to this clip between Kuiper, Julius Kuiper and George that I want to play. There is one more thing. An invitation to a ball my wife is giving this evening for you and Mrs. Kuiper. I look forward to seeing you there. Alas, with no warning, I'm not sure our diaries will allow it. I've not made myself clear. I will see you there if you want the loan. You can't be serious. Don't think you can go elsewhere. I have a list of reasons why not to invest in your bank, and I will send it to anyone you approach. Isn't that against the law? Let's find out. You are not... A gentleman, sir. That's a subject for another time. 
Very well. I will attend. But I cannot promise that my wife will. The loan hinges on her presence. But suppose she is engaged tonight. I'm sure when you explain the situation, she will find that she can join us after all. You are not a gentleman, sir. That is a conversation for another time. That's great. He's just unrepentant. He's like, I love my wife and I don't fucking care about you. So come at me, bro. You want your million dollars? He's like the general, like uh, the fisherman in the general insurance commercials. Oh, gotta be faster. Gotta be faster. Oh, you gotta come to my bowl. Gotta come to my bowl. Oh, 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 you know? Yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. It makes me the so happy. The ruthlessness of Bertha and George has been a delight the entire season. Every ruthlessness time based they- in love. Because love is enough! (laughs) Bookends. Just continuing on George and being a good husband and his worry for his wife as they come down to it, now that he's in the clear from the investigation, I feel like George really turns his attention to Bertha and and the ball and making sure and doing whatever he can, like coercing Kuiper and his wife to coming to the ball. I, you know, he, he's being a team player here. And I like that about him. Uh, I was interested by this, this discussion in the morning where they were talking about RSVPs. Let's listen to this clip about doing great things. And then, uh, then you and I need to talk about the terror of no one RSVPing to your party. Well, we've reached the day. If there are still no answers from the great folk, you'd better think of some last-minute replacements if we're not to look absurd, waltzing around an empty ballroom. Don't worry. Aurora's been busy. The ballroom won't be empty. But we'll be without the great princes you were tilting at. Don't speak too soon. I wish I knew the cards you think you have up your sleeve. I'm taking a chance, George. I know that. But whoever achieved great things without taking a chance? True enough. I mean, she's talking George's language there. I love that these two are so on board with, you got to risk it. To get the biscuit. I actually just said that to my son a little while ago. He, he said something about risk it. And I was like, to get the biscuit, you've got to do right. it. So he didn't understand it. But you, you 90s kids That's out there great. get it. Yeah. I get uh, it. <laughs> so I like that she has this pathos, but I also appreciate George kind of worrying that his wife is going to look a fool. I really don't think it's even that he thinks he's going to look a fool. I think it's, I think his concern here really is solely that Bertha would look silly if it's an empty ballroom, a redux. I mean, he still very much remembers that empty ballroom for the, for the ill-fated housewarming that we were talking about earlier from episode one. A hundred percent. And he's been by her side. I mean, all of the different moves they've had to make this entire season, buying out the craft bazaar and, and all the times he's had to strong arm someone to do this or do that, inviting someone over to the house. He's making his moves, but this is on such a grand level that if no one does show it, it, he can't like hide that for her. Right. It's a make or break moment. Yeah. Yeah, It's a, it's a make or break moment. I mean, when even Ward, the, the succubus of, of wealth has an RSVP yet, I give her credit for not sweating bullets. I mean, she's being real grace under fire here. I'm sure her belly is tied up in knots, but (laughs) I mean, I don't throw a lot of parties, but I've had to organize a few minor small things. And when RSVPs aren't rolling in, 
it's nerve-wracking. I couldn't imagine trying to fill that goddamn ballroom. It would be really, really tense. I would go out of my way to make sure nothing, nothing else could possibly be scheduled on that same day. I would do everything to stack the cards in my favor, but boy, would it make me nervous. A nice little detail there that Aurora has been busy and at work, so the ballroom wouldn't be empty no matter what happens. It's just a question of, you know, she gives, in the scene before this, she gives George a rundown of... Plenty of yeses from people I don't care about, you know, some yeses from people that I kind of care about and no yeses from anyone that I really care about. Aurora has skin in the game. She has tied herself to Bertha now to a large extent over these last few episodes. So it's in Aurora's interest to have people in that ballroom or else she would also be embarrassed. It's kind of like a dominoes effect, right? Throwing in with Bertha the way that she has, you know, she's she's taken her side over Anne Morris and stuff like that. Like, and it, it is a hundred percent. I don't remember who that. Who, who's that? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that, that that gal. You know, I mean, not only is it to her benefit, but I mean, also, I mean, it would be tiresome to feel like you're being strong armed into like inviting her to the box at the opera or you know inviting her to go do this. Like, at some point, you want her to get her own sea legs here so that you can just do your own thing again. You're you're not having to. Like, like escort her around because she doesn't have the gravitas. We didn't get a lot of Georgia Bertha in this episode beyond these couple of scenes where George is thinking about her and God, he's commiserating with Clay about about Julius Kuiper's wife and how she's important. And Clay is like, whatever, I'm, you know, still trying to make that TV dinner. Like, I, what are you talking about? You know, or this scene where he catches her in bed the morning of. But they are standing next to each other as as they do when it's important. And he has the great line. He gets to say the title of the episode, the the drink moment when he says, let the tournament begin. Listen, the show theme swells at this point as the ball begins and the doors open and we see the paparazzi outside. But when he says, let the tournament begin, it's like the show's theme, which they use in so many different situations in this show. They slow it up. They they strip it down. They make it just piano and slow and more full. They do a lot. It's a very versatile theme, but it it swells in its full grandeur. When he says, let the tournament begin, I got goosebumps. I got like real like goose flesh on my skin. I was so excited for that moment. The music is perfection in this entire season. I feel like there were so many moments where it helps set the tone for you in a way as the viewer to to know, like, I know all of this is formal language, but there's times when it would do that, like, bump, 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 bump. That would be like a little more like, we're trying to be playful, even though we're being formal. And that would be like, oh, okay, all right, we're, we're being a little bit more playful. And then like that, like you said, the swelling of the music and like, you can feel the anticipation and the importance of this going well. Well, if all you did was listen to the music, you know, yeah. and that's amazing. I know we are, we're going to have an opportunity coming up to talk to some of the composers. Uh, yes, uh, the composers for the show are Harry Gregson Williams and Rupert Gregson Williams. They wrote all of the music for the show. Actually, the day the finale aired, HBO actually released the official show soundtrack, which I have been listening to uh, since it came out. I, I had an advance link to it also, which I was very excited about. It's fantastic. It puts you right in the show. So I've had it on his background music. It's an hour and 18 minutes long if you just let it run. It's 39 tracks. So it captures a lot of different moments from the show. It's fantastic. And when it's on in the background, like I feel like when I'm typing my notes or yelling at people or doing my contract review or whatever, I feel like I'm doing it inside like Russell Consolidated Trust Office or something. I feel like I'm transported to not not like uh, Miss Bingham transported, but I'm transported in a way to 
that Gilded Age mindset. So uh, it's available for streaming everywhere. It's available for download and purchase at Amazon Music and Apple iTunes Store. So definitely go check out the official show soundtrack. I appreciated how the waltz that they were doing during the ball actually like wove in the theme song. Like mm-hmm. it, we, like it was a waltz, but it was like a hundred percent. Like, wait, I know this song. <laughs> like, They've oh. done so much with it. I've I've noted it a couple times when it's particularly hit me. There was a really sad use of it. What was it? It was just a couple episodes ago where it was just the piano. And it was very slow, and it was just the it was just the piano, no other instrumentation, but it was the theme. Uh, and they were playing it. It's it's super versatile. It, it it works for all situations. It's like that black dress you have in your closet. Like it just works for everything. I'm a big fan of the music. I, I'm I'm excited to talk to the Gregs and Williamses. It, it should be fun. The music is a, just like the costuming is an unsung hero of this series and this season. What did you think of the grandeur of the ball? Because I think plot wise, once the ball begins, the plot kind of becomes less important and it's really time for the spectacle of the thing to shine. I wish that I, you know, that that parties were still thrown like this. Uh, really, things like the fact that men can dance, you know, I mean, I was just like loving all of that. I miss like I had another, you know, a whole nother lifetime where where I feel like that that was commonplace. And for my own self now, I'm like, nobody knows how to dance. Nobody knows how to do this. And I, I just love it. I love this type of stuff. How about you? Do you wish that that men could dance? Do you wish that you could do all the waltzes? I have basic rudimentary knowledge of dancing, not to this extent, not not and not formally trained. I actually took some dance classes in the mid '90s during the swing craze, so I, course, I, I could do the Charleston and do some swing dance, and I could throw my partner around for a little bit, uh, wow. not with my current back and the sciatica and, and the weather and stuff. Like it's got to be optimal uh, optimal the conditions. <laughs> it's got to be optimal conditions for this boy to start swinging people around on the floor. But uh, but I appreciate it, and you know, here's the thing: there dance scenes. And, and grandeur and spectacle is so important to be shot well because you get unsophisticated directors or people who don't know what they have in front of them and they tend to do a lot of close-up shots on like specific faces or they cut a lot don't give me that if you're having a ball and you're having these gorgeous men and gorgeous ladies and these gowns and these tuxedos and the music and the lights and the flowers and all of it together Give me a wide shot and just let me drink it in. Put the put the camera on a crane, go high up and just show me the whole thing and let me just feast on it. This show does that so well. We get high shots in the foyer when the guests are coming and they're being announced like they're sitting for the queen. And we get high crane shots of the entire ballroom often during the ball scene once the dancing begins. And it's so smart because it lets you – it puts you there. It puts you in the scene. It really immerses you. It's 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 a really well done last twenty minutes of the show. I, I really really enjoyed it, and it felt like triumphant. Like you know, a lot of times when we yes. get to a season finale, you want a wedding, a funeral, a birth. You want something, and this party was all of those things. Like it was so exciting. You know, it was the death of just uh, the old ways. I think you've got the birth of the new money here, and and of Gladys. You've got you know, I think new connections being made between Larry and Mary. And I, you know, I just think there's so much potential for all these different relationships moving forward that it was exciting. Come on. We have to we have to talk about little scampy Ward McAllister, who comes in after (laughs) Mrs. Astor and Carrie. He's the last one who's really announced that we were paying attention to. Uh, And he has this great little like sass line. I love this guy so much. 
Mrs. Astor, Mrs. Russell. Mr. McAllister? Well, here we are. All of us together. What could be nice? <laughs> <laughs> if they had called this episode all of us together that would have been just as good as let the tournament begin what a little cheeky muppet he is isn't he he's just like well here we are <laughs> like yeah we are <laughs> but he's doing exactly what he's done all season since he was introduced it feels crazy to think that he was only in half of the season's episode that they dangled him for so long because he became such an integral part of the story of bertha's story anyway but he was only in the back half of the season but he is the this bridge he is the one bridging the gap between bertha in in you know take taking her hand and bringing mrs astor taking her hand and and making them shake hands the way like you know your coach would do when you're having a fight with a teammate like you gotta shake hands so we can go out in the field and be a team together you know so we can force smiles on our faces for our kids like that's what he's doing he's bridging the gap and it's so well done and nathan lane is just a, a credit to the role uh worth every penny He's made no bones about it that he's here for the party. Yeah. You know, like Mrs. Astor said, so you want to go to the ball. That's like, code for you want to go to the ball. <laughs> exactly. So that's like his whole <laughs> thing, you know. And But I appreciate it because you know what? That's exactly right. And the faster that these types of little, like, I don't even know what to call them, the friction of it all during society, the faster we get through that, the faster we all just throw more parties and have more fun. I think the only people not really having fun at this ball are Agnes is Agnes and Marion to a certain extent, <laughs> though we learn later once the Flagler party left and Agnes and Ada left. It sounds like actually Marion had a pretty good time. She stayed there till the morning. Did. Yeah. So I think Agnes is the only one who was really chewing on glass. What did you think of her entire take on this that we're not going to quarrel with Mrs. Astor? We'll reserve the right to quarrel with with Bertha Russell if need be down the road. I've never heard it phrased like that, but I certainly know the feeling of like, I can bury whatever is going on inside me right now and deal with it. But I reserve the right to be like snotty about this later. A hundred percent. I feel like I've been there. I've done that. Why are we doing that more often? Right. <laughs> I want to start reserving the right to be quarreling quarrel, with people later. Quarrel later. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so many people I want to write. I want the right to reserve the quarrel with them later. Because everyone always says you, it's like forgive and forget, right? Like that's the whole thing. I want forgive and forget or reserve the right to quarrel later. <laughs> like there you go. There's a Klingon in a Star Trek episode one time who, who – You've already got my attention. <laughs> I, this is really good stuff for the Gilded Age crowd. Um, but but his line that he says because he's, he's like really bug-eyed and he's crazy looking. He's a crazy man. He's a crazy Klingon. But he says, I shall never forgive and never forget. And that forget <laughs> lives in my head all the time. And I think that to myself 90 times a day with the people I deal with uh, in, my, in my everyday life. And I think that I'll never forget. That's Agnes. It's fantastic. I love that. You know what? Never forgetting is is actually reserving the right to quarrel later. You know, like I'm not going to forget. I'm going to keep this just right under under my skin here. So yeah, I'm ready. Oh, oh, Galron, I I take my lessons from the Klingon (laughs) High Leader. Uh, For the last time, let's while we're talking about Agnes, let's let's hit the last two good uh, Agnes's wit and witticisms from the season. Uh, This is when she maybe exaggerates what being invited to Bertha party and forced to go uh may mean this can't be right what's that she's taken leave of her senses who lena astor listen 
If you consider yourselves to be my friends, you will attend Mrs. Russell's ball this evening. Really? Don't you dare sound cheerful. I am curious about that house. Really? You are glad to be ordered to march into hell and to dance with the devil? I wonder sometimes if you don't slightly overstate your arguments. We cannot be forced to dance. So are we to quarrel with Mrs. Astor or Mrs. Russell? Well... I do not wish to quarrel with Mrs. Astor, so we will obey her now. But reserve the right to quarrel with Mrs. Russell later. <laughs> I Man, I, I would love to march into hell and dance with the devil. That sounds like a hell of a good time. I don't think Agnes <laughs> has given that enough credit for how much fun that sounds. <laughs> I love Ada's line about the, like, I do wonder if sometimes you... may you exaggerate. Exaggerate. That was so good. I was like, that's one of those I got to put in my back pocket. Like, when someone's really acting super dramatic, just be like, I, I just, I'm just going to, just like quandary, quandary here. Are you freaking out a little too much? Not sure. But Who that's, can say? But that's, that's Ada's role to Agnes. That's her Jiminy Cricket like role to Agnes all season. It's the it's the perfect encapsulation of everything Ada is to Agnes in the show. Like come back down, like pulling on her string like a balloon who's floating away. Like come back down, you know, exactly. and, like cut it with the hyperbole. But she's not done with the hyperbole because uh, after invoking hell and dancing with the devil, uh, she later invokes black magic. Mm. Are we really determined on this? Marion looks so beautiful. It would be a shame not to show her off. How are you feeling, my dear? Just dandy. How can she have got round Lena? I never believed in black magic, but I'm having my doubts. Did Mrs. Astor explain why she wanted you to come? She didn't explain it, she ordered it. As simple as that. I suppose you don't have to go just because she said so. Never overestimate your own power, my dear. It's always a mistake. Even here at the end of the season, even when she is angry at being forced to come to this ball, she's still giving Marion some life bone moths that Marion will patently refuse to listen to. We could not go. No, that's not how it works. Everyone is going. The paparazzi <laughs> is outside. You have been summoned by Lena Astor. You are going. How do you not understand how this works yet? <laughs> she's getting there. She's getting there. She's I mean, again, we there. said she is going to be the one that shows the most growth over the course of this entire series. I'm sure of it. So we have to let her, you know, have these moments where she's uh, she's real. She's real like little guy, like just the, the littlest bird in the nest. You well, know, here's she's the still thing. trying to figure it out. Here, here's what I was thinking about, because it was something that I think we brought up and I'd be embarrassed if we went back and we didn't talk about it. But I think we talked about it on the podcast because I know we definitely had conversations when we were first getting ready to record Marion's role in the show. And the reason she used to ask so many questions, we had a, we had a good time doing the question counter with her uh, <laughs> when we were watching this episode is because she is the audience's avatar to this world, right? She represents us asking all of these questions about this world that we don't understand. Even still now, that's the role she is fulfilling yes she has had her journey she has had her her love journey and her broken heart journey but overall her role in the show as central a character as she is is representing us and i know we've had a lot uh, we've had a lot of fun poking at her and and you know she, she's like a baby deer new to the world constantly 
that's a necessary evil because she is asking these questions that we ourselves watching need to be asked and answered. If she's not bringing it up, then we don't get the backstory of why it has to be this way. Why is Chamberlain shunned? Why is Agnes doing this thing that she doesn't want to do? Why the old rules versus the new rules? All these questions wouldn't have been addressed because everyone else knows them except for Marion. So she has to ask on behalf of us because otherwise – Agnes and Ada are not going to have a conversation about new people versus old people. They know. She's a narrative device for sure. And, and and it's important to remember that, you know, overall we're telling this story. And so we have to look out for people like that who are like, what, what, are, what is the role that they're playing right now? What are they supposed to be revealing about society? What are they supposed to be showing us or pointing us in the right direction? I mean, now we know that there are people like Mr. Rakes in the society without Marion, without the choices she made as a literary device here like we would never get to see like oh there's these other social climbers that do stuff like this you know we would never get to know that so i'm happy in the way that they use her she she can be you know <laughs> where we shrug our, our little shake our little heads at her <laughs> but right. but it, she's she's well used we have the benefit of having her asking questions for us but we also get, we're we're the omnipotent viewer right we get to see everyone's interaction we get to spend all of our time eavesdropping on these people so by the nature of the show and its setup, we automatically know more than she does. Plus, she's asking questions on our behalf. We get to see George and Bertha when Marion's not around. She doesn't get to see that. She doesn't understand how this is working and the machinations and what it took to get Mrs. Astor to this party. We get to see that. So we get to be superior to Marion in, in the knowledge base. But she's also out there asking questions for us every day. <laughs> like she's out there asking questions like she's our intrepid reporter. <laughs> she's it. She's it. She, right. <laughs> exactly. She's she's pounding that pavement. Working. She's she is carving a path between those two houses on 61st Street. So right. Right. Trying to get us answers. This ball featured a lot of pointed and significant head nodding. A lot of messages being conveyed in this ballroom by by curt nods between Agnes and Bertha. Uh, there is, I think, Bertha and Mrs. Astor exchange a head nod. I think Aurora gets in on, on the head nodding action. There's <laughs> lots of head nodding and mm -hmm, like, like, like tipping your hat kind of thing from across the room, which is great because the music is loud. People are dancing. So you convey it with a head nod. You know, you don't want to walk all the way over there. Agnes is not going to walk over to Bertha unless she has to. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those shows, like, like when I was speaking about, you know, rewatchability, this is one of those shows that you don't want to be looking down at your phone. You don't want to be folding the laundry or whatever. You want to keep your head up and pay attention because there's a lot of subtle moments like that that convey so much. Because remember, we learned all these different things. Remember, we were, we were either watching uh, a Sonia Warfield uh, interview where she was saying you can't even look into the carriage of another person like you can't acknowledge them you're like you cannot even give them that that glance right. because that is too much you know where, right. and so just those little subtleties making eye contact and nodding your head is significant it's significant for agnes to do that i know i'm having fun with it and i'm saying it in a joking way <laughs> but for agnes to do that there's a reason why ada says that was nice of you <laughs> Jesus Christ, she just nodded her fucking head She's, but it's significant no, though it's but important. it's not it's important it's important yeah. Yeah. Right. 
I like you say, that is nice of you. That is a very good Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> right? That's a, good, that's a good Ada. Cynthia Nixon is something else, but it's it's a very good Ada. Um, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Gladys. She's the girl of the, the bell of the ball, despite what George says. She George says that, in fact, Bertha is the bell of the ball. But this is Gladys's moment as much as it is Bertha's moment. We talked a little bit about the transformation of this ball, but dig into it. Are you surprised that Oscar got a dance with her at all? She makes him wait, and I'm happy she does, but he still does get that first dance. That's significant for Oscar. Is is he in play now? Going, let's let's do like putting on our projection hats for season two. Ooh, is okay. Oscar a player now for Gladys's hand, given that he got that honor? I have to imagine that's an honor. I believe that he has to stay on the table for him to stay relevant. I mean, his entire, you know, season has been his play against Gladys and exactly what he's going to do and how that creates all these these extra, you know, rumples between him and John. So, yeah, that's going to stay on the table until it's 100 percent not. it's going to stick there. So I definitely thought that he was going to get a dance. I don't know if I thought it would be the first dance, but I mean, my goodness, he's, he's really been the one who's been buzzing around the most. At this point, we're remiss if we don't talk about the morning after where John and Oscar meet up in their love shack that they have. Oscar's feeling very confident. He's kissing on John. John acknowledges that it seems like he made some headway with Gladys. And Oscar assures him that he thinks he has, but then also assures John that nothing has to change or nothing will change. Again, paying attention to the show and to the body language, I'm not convinced that John buys that. John John is not, he's not pushing Oscar away, but the body language I'm getting from John here is, oh, things have changed, my dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting setup for season two. I don't know how invested John is in this anymore. I think he sees Oscar in a different light now. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that John has had his fill, don't you? I think he's had his heart broken. Uh, ooh, okay. I see. I, I was taking it like he has had it up to here with the shenanigans. But you're right. Let's. I'll go. Well, in, I think, I think they're order. hand in hand. I think I the think, shenanigans so have too. broken his heart. Yeah, but I will say broken heart first, and then like. I can't like I can't even with your antics. I love that he wants to like throw in and like start like creating his own stirring the shit here. Like good on John. I want this. I, I, I it would be fascinating for for who could have been your romantic partner slash like your power couple other half to become your foil is like kind of amazing. Wouldn't you like me to come? Of course. I should get started as long as the train she wants us to catch. What's the matter? Larry Russell told me that his mother and sister are going to be in Newport at the same time as me. So you're still determined on her? I am. And bumping into her at Newport would be perfect. John, be reasonable. What did you think would happen? That doesn't mean that I want it to happen. I want what's best for you. And you should want what's best for me. The difference is I love you. Where do you think we are? But I do. And I don't see why we can't just carry on as before. Because I don't have enough money for the way I want to live. And because behavior which attracts no gossip in the young man starts to make people wonder as we get older. I can't have that. Are you finished, monsieur? Yes, I think we probably are. 
John loves Oscar. And for John, that is enough. Not to bookend themes like I've been harping on during this episode. But for John, he doesn't need all of the riches of Giza to, to be with Oscar. He just needs a man that loves him the way that he loves him. That scene from episode eight, I think, is where John's heart officially breaks. And he's just kind of like, fuck it. I'm going to go get mine. Because he's heartbroken. He says, I love you in this men's club. And Oscar's response is not awe or any kind of reciprocation. It's like, where are you? It's the shusher. He's a sh- he's the shusher. Yeah. John is heartbroken. And I don't think that is fixed at the end of this episode. At the end of the season, he's still heartbroken. So Oscar may have all of these great plans, but I don't know that John's going to be around in season two to be playing ball. I think he is going to be around in season two because I think he's. I think he has uh, around a purpose, with uh, putting up with Oscar shenanigans. No, definitely not. But 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 he serves a, a whole purpose here, and I think that there's there's so many great parallels between what was going on between Tom and Marion, and what's going on between John and Oscar. How many times we said throughout this season, you know, Oscar and Tom don't spend any time actually wooing the person they're, who's sitting across them from them. You know, they're not telling them how much they love them. They're always talking about their plans and things they're doing with other people and other people they have their eye on and it was like wild how much they were similar and you know what i think that the marians and the johns of the world they deserve to to create their own chaos for these people if you remember your sats uh there's like the analogies portion oscar is to tom rakes as john adams (laughs) is to marion brooke I think you're 100% right. In the same way that we were able to analyze Turner Turner and Chamberlain as being different ends of the same kind of storyline, I think Oscar and John are a great way to understand Marion and Tom Rakes and vice versa. John has a better sense of love and what he wants, I think, than Marion does. But he's getting the same treatment. He's not getting the wooing, like you're saying, that the same way that Marion was never getting the wooing from Tom. Just being told, I've got it handled. I'm doing what's right for me. Not even, not even that. How about the way that they talk? They're just always about, hey, so guess what I was doing? I was doing stuff with other people that aren't you. That's basically how these two men talk to their partners. Well, that clip from episode eight that I just played, Oscar says, I don't have enough money for me. Not, I don't, we talked about, and we're just repeating, I'm just repeating myself from last week, but that's huge. That is not a faux pas. That is not an accidental verbal slippage. That's how Oscar thinks. He's not thinking, I don't have enough money for us to live and be happy. He says, I don't have enough money for me. That's what Tom Rakes is saying. When I mean, when I mean, or doesn't say, Marion says, I guess Mrs. Bingham has enough money for you, you know, for, for you to have the lifestyle you want. They're the same person. They're the same person. I don't like Oscar now. I just realized <laughs> I don't like Oscar now. Yeah, they're awfully similar. I, the Oscar's saving grace is that we have actually had a little bit more time with him behind the scenes, you know, where he is having conversations, say, with like his mom or with Ada. In other scenarios, we're with like Tom Ranks, we got nothing else. You know, we just saw his shenanigans with Marion, and then the door would close when he talked to Peggy, and we really got nothing else. Oscar is a little more balanced because we see him as a son. We see him as a friend to Larry. Like, he has some other dimension to him 
where Tom like never got that any of that. No, no. Uh, let's talk about co- no. Let's talk about costuming <laughs> at the ball. There are some beautiful costumes here. Oh man, I was so in love with Lena Astor's dress. So in love, I would wear that in a heartbeat. So 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 beautiful. I thought Aurora Fane looked beautiful. I thought she had, that dress she was wearing. I think it fit her well, but I think it was the right color for her. I liked Bertha's dress. It seemed very cutting edge and if you listen to our interview with uh, julian fellows and sonia warfield they talk about the fashion at the ball and how her dress is a cutting edge dress but i think what did he say they just finished uh you know cutting that fabric in 1882 like and literally put on her on that body kind of right. thing like that's cutting edge fashion i thought it looked great i don't know that i would wear it but <laughs> um but uh, well, there was something about the print that was very like daytime and more casual so when you take that and then you have the the complete opposite and you put that into a formal gown there's something about that that's so you know disarming and like fresh that you could see like okay like this this print and this combination of doing this in this style like this would normally be like more i don't know like garden party or something like way more casual with like leaves on it and stuff like it's just not what you would expect to see at nighttime and so then for her to be wearing this it was like yeah she was very cutting edge avant-garde it's almost like you know hook tour right i mean totally uh which again costuming in this show matters if you're willing to pay attention listen to our interview with kelly o'hara she says it perfectly in that and and i've held on to it she says if you're willing to pay attention to it the costuming in this show tells you a lot about the people who wearing who are wearing the outfits they all Mm -hmm. carry meaning and bertha is not making any apologies for her new money here she's not shrinking she's not being a shrinking violent she is not shying away she has brought these people to her palace of versailles-esque ballroom she is wearing cutting edge fashions and not making apologies or hiding herself at all lena astor looking beautiful in that regal dress but it's extremely old money it's very regal agnes and ada i thought they looked beautiful they they, but very old and not old in age but old in style there was just a marked difference and an aurora wearing the dress i think she's wearing like a powder blue dress if i remember correctly like somewhere in the middle like somewhere she wants to be a bertha but she her 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 closet is only old money dresses kind of so she's doing the best she can kind of thing it's really fascinating if you watch it and and pay attention to it the same way you can i think understand the show just by listening to the music i think you can understand a lot of the show just by watching the women's fashions I agree, especially when you pair it with with like, you know, Kelly's interview with us and stuff. I really think that you start to, you know, see and hear things that you're like, wait a minute. Like, I'm really understanding this so much better. Oh, Marion. Oh, Marion. What is that bloody blooming rose upon your chest, girl? (sighs) I mean, the metaphors there, right? I mean, I know it's based on a painting. I know that there that there is like historical significance, but I agree with you. I mean, I, I guess you could probably go with some sort of, you know, like broken heart, bleeding heart kind of stuff happening right, there. Like a like a gut. Like it looks like a gunshot that's like with a with a blood bloom in her chest. It looks like she has a chest wound. <laughs> right, which sure. metaphorically she does. Right. But Jesus, give her like a ruby brooch in her chest or something. You know, like we said, it, it's historically accurate to this portrait and everything, but I'm just, mm, it. yeah, it's not, I don't like it at all. I, it was distracting for me. It was distracting. It was all I could see of Marion in this ball was, was just that 
was the red thing? And what even material was that? It was like tool. It almost looked like a tool, like flower brooch thing. It was very strange. Pull it up. If you go to popculturereview.com, you could see all of the pictures. I've been holding on to this. There is an episode of Friends where I believe it is Rachel. She is getting ready to go to a fancy dinner with Ross when they're together. And she gets a stain on her dress. And Phoebe comes out with something that looks exactly like what Marion is wearing. And it looks like this giant ribbon you would put on a present and like put, gives it to her to put on like her chest to cover up the stain because the stain is just very obvious. It looks ridiculous. And I thought of that. I was like, this is something that was used in a mid 90s sitcom. You know, like, it blew my mind that she would leave the house this way. And Ada kept saying she looks so beautiful and she, she does look beautiful, but that, accoutrement really was distracting listen i'm wearing sweatpants right now in a t-shirt i am not one to comment on anyone's fashion but no. i did find it distracting i mean i get the metaphor of it but it is it was a lot it was it was a lot otherwise in a sea of beautiful gowns let's see the mashups we have war dancing with mrs astor you have oscar and gladys I love that Larry cashed in his favor. You know, he, he cashed in his owed waltz. I love seeing these two together. I'm not ready to ship them. I'm not against it, but it's so odd. It's so easy to say, put these two together, but watching them dance and he's such a good, I mean, he's easily, he can easily be friend zoned, right? Which is something he's going to have to avoid if he wants to have a relationship with her. But in this moment, when he says, I believe you owe me a waltz, and then he takes her and he dances, and everything is better when you're dancing and twirling and spinning around. Nothing bad can happen when that's happening, right? I'm shocked you're not shipping them. You are, you are such a, such the I shipper. I feel like I'm such a, a ship slut. So I'm, I'm you trying. Are. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm willing to ship everyone everywhere always. But so that's right. why I'm trying to keep you my just powder dry. Everybody up. Real I quick. just like kissing Caroline. I just oh, like God. kissing. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I wanted them to be together. I wanted them to be together since the first episode. I thought because of their ages and, and closeness and this new do fondness about them, I think they're adorable together. I mean, I don't think they have... I don't want to be pejorative about their brain power together, but I, I think they're very cute together. I think they would be nice to watch go in this world together. I think they would be very sweet to each other. They seem very naive and, and just very But in a innocent. sweet way, though. And, not in a way that makes yeah. me want to hit them with a frying pan. They just really haven't done anything yet. Um, and so as they do, it'll be interesting to see how their personalities and their approaches shape you know, their behavior, because I really think that we haven't seen that. They're so neutral right now. They're both so vanilla. Like, I'd be interested to see how, like, these life events are going to start to create who they really are. And this season ends with them both in a place primed to begin climbing through this world and and really accumulating life experiences you have larry moving forward with his architect career and seemingly not getting an express blessing from his father but he gets a patent on his knee which as a dad i think is significant you know when he says this is a great time and a great country and i want to be a part of it you know larry looks at him and kind of smiles and, ta and pats his knee a pat from yeah. your dad on the knee that's like a huge kind of affirmation i was happy for larry there i was happy that he continued to have the backbone to defend what he wants to do i think it's exciting too as a family for them to finally be excited 
and hopeful and looking forward to stuff together, like all of them. Gladys and Larry have been such a holding pattern. There's been this angst. You know, Bertha has been so just like consumed and worried about like, you know, what's going to happen? What's the next step for their family? How is this going to actually work out? For them to have this, I mean, what an exhale of an evening for all of them to be like, oh, thank God. A triumph. Something a triumph across the board. Yeah. yeah, it's just, I, I, I can feel that, you know. You know, it just it just mm, what what a huge relief. And and on the Marion side of the equation, she has had real significant heartbreak as far as she's aware. You know, it's her first. And so it's going to be painful. I think you had a really good uh, take with saying that it is the final vestige being cut away from Doylestown uh, mm-hmm. with, with the separation from Rakes here, uh, you know. That can only lead her in a place, assuming that she's not in some kind of clinical depression in season two from this. No, she seemed she seemed pretty together, honestly. She did. There's a moment, and we don't give Louisa Jacobson, the actress, enough credit on the show because we spend so much time talking about Marion. There's a scene where she intercepts Larry with the ants and then escorts him out of the house, and she closes the door behind him. She lets out the best side that I can't believe was scripted. It felt the actress Mm -hmm. just knowing this character and what she was feeling. It is one of the greatest sighs ever I think I've ever seen on television. Go watch it again. It's right after Larry leaves. She closes the door and she doesn't put her head against the door, but she looks like she wants to. And she just goes... And it's so there's so much emotion in it. There's so much behind it. The the, what she's been through with Tom in this episode, what she just narrowly averted with Larry and the letters and Agnes and her aunts and what that would have been like. There's so much that is that is tying her up in knots now that she's free of for the first time since the show. She's free. And just you saying that, it also makes me realize how much she has grown to value Ada and Agnes throughout this experience with Rakes because she was willing to have those letters be delivered and willing to kind of cut those relationships off in almost a Dear John kind of way. To have her have the relief that the letters were not delivered, I think is going to solidify her loyalty and her like actual realization of how important these relationships are to her. That is almost like hard to believe to her now. Like, I can't believe I almost just tossed my aunts away with these letters for this dude. You know, like, I I think she's going to have a newfound love, I want to say, for these two women. I would be disappointed in her if she doesn't. I think they're going to be quite a team. I think you add Aurora on there, and, like, I think they're quite a little grouping. They've made, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but let's talk about Chamberlain and Aurora, because there's that scene where Chamberlain and Aurora are left in, in, in Sylvia's house, and Aurora says, I hope that Marion's secret and Chamberlain cuts her off and says, it'll be safe with me and gives her a very pointed look as in like, I've been here for Marion this whole time. You know, yeah. I've been trying to keep her from making this mistake without controlling her the way everyone wants to control everyone in society. Is this the start of a thaw? Is this the start of Chamberlain mm-hmm. being accepted? Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. You didn't get that from no. Aurora. You didn't no, get her looking her at Chamberlain. Back. Her comment back was her reputation is safe with me. There was something about that. That felt very like, you don't say that. It made me feel gross. Like, it was like, why are you even putting it on the table that her reputation 
may not be safe with you. There was something about saying it out loud. There was something mm. about, I'm just telling I'm telling you how it hit me. Uh, no, there was sure. something about Chamberlain in that moment. If I was sitting in that room, I would double take. I would throw my eyebrows. I'd be like, mm, I don't even like that you said that. Like that feels weird. And it's because I believe Aurora says secret and I believe Chamberlain says reputation. And for there's something about that that feels like why you even got to go there. No one was talking about reputation. What are you doing? We talked a little bit throughout this season about what is a villain and, and you know, really what role did Chamberlain play in terms of like, yes, she's providing a house, but she's providing a house when she very well knows that this could get, you know, uh, so much trouble for Marion. There's something about the But whole she also thing. actively tried to make Marion think She's the only one to told Marion, think about what you're doing and laid out reasons why should be she should be hesitant. Well, Ada did too, and Aurora did too. Mm, they treated her like a niece, like uh, patting her on head a niece. I think Chamberlain is the only one that treated Marion, other than Peggy, that treated her like an adult woman and said, I and said without saying, I'm not gonna control you here and I will help you because we're friends, but you need to think about this. You need to think about who he really is. I appreciate that. I got to pull the camera way, way, way back and say, if you're really a friend and you really claim to know how society works, you don't allow this young blank slate girl to even get wrapped up with you because you know you're toxic and you know you could wreck her chances of being accepted with her aunts and the rest of the group here. So if you're really a good person, you say, I like you kid and I appreciate you talking to me and I appreciate you being nice to me, but you really do need to keep your distance. You don't keep up with the conversation and keep bringing her back in and come over to my house and blah, blah. We talked about that, like grooming process. She's going to appear nice. That's the only way groomers can do their job. They have to come off nice in order to eventually hit you against someone else and, and use her for leverage. And that's what I worry about. I worry that she's going to eventually use all of the nice things she's done for Marion as leverage to get herself back into society. Obviously, you can't you can never know. And, and, and Lord Julian Fellows told us he never wants to talk too, too much about what's going to happen in the future because he doesn't want to put himself in a, in a corner. So maybe. But as of now, you know, Sylvia has accumulated a lot of chips that she could use to damage and destroy Marion and hasn't used any of them and hasn't even, like, teased that she may. Why is that, like, a pat on the back, though? Like, like you're looking at that, like, so what a good friend she is. And I'm like, what do you mean, what a good friend you are for not destroying me? You're a good friend? Like, oh, man, I don't know. That's a low bar. Well, no, no. But she hasn't done anything to show her as a bad friend. I don't think so. I think I think she has treated her as an adult woman. And and from that point of view, I think she's been a good friend. And and I'm not saying that it won't turn around in season two and she'll be, you know, blackmailing Marion into whatever. But from what we have seen, I think Chamberlain did the best she could to help Marion out of several jams and, and allow her to live her life in a way she understands society wasn't going to let her. I don't know, man. I just I put her in the category of the type of cool teacher who like pushes the boundaries and allows kids to say and do things too much too far that all the other adults look at them and go like, we see you. 
and we see you preying on someone who's more naive and and less knowledgeable about what is going on in this society. I see you, girl, and I don't like what you're doing. She doesn't do it to Ada. She's purposely choosing people who don't know better. I don't know that that's like that's a good thing, you know. She's doing, but she can't though. She knows she is persona non grata from all of those people. I'll give you a you know one thing to notice in this episode, which I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but I picked up on my rewatch was the footman when it's just her and Peggy sitting in the room. The footman looks to her about whether or not to pour Peggy tea, and she nods her head as and like, yeah, she's my fucking guest sitting here, and so he pours her tea. The only people that she could get in her house are the ones that don't know better. And even still, she never hit the fact for Marion, like, you're going to get in trouble for being here. Like, I want a friend and I like you. inviting her. But yeah, she wants a friend. Why should she be uh, this? Because she's supposed to be the adult in the room. She's supposed to be the one. To what age? I mean, if we're saying Marion is not 17, 18, if we're saying Marion is 21, 22, 23, yes, she's naive to the world, but she's also 21, 22, 23. She is an adult. We can leave this like pinned on the board. I, I'm completely good with that. I just, I think you're wanting to see the best in her. And what I'm saying is that I think that someone who knows that they have the upper hand in the situation and they have something to offer you and they use that relationship to put you in a bad position with your family and the rest of the people who love and take care of you, that is not a good person and will never be a good person in your life. They know what they're doing and they're willing to do it to you. And I don't like that. So I'm going to put a pin in the board on like, let's just see how she turns out. Maybe it will all be for the good. And maybe, maybe somehow Marion will ask the other women to please give Mrs. Chamberlain a second chance. And, and maybe things will go better and all will be for the good. Maybe, maybe the other shoe's going to drop. And when Agnes finds out she's been, you know, cavorting around with Chamberlain, there's going to be hell to pay. And that's going to really suck. Are you off, dear? Yes. Would you like me to post those? No. They're just something for Larry Russell. I'll drop them off. Won't you need your bag? It's at Mrs. Chamberlain's. Of course. I saw Miss Scott go off with it. You know that to accept help from Mrs. Chamberlain with this is something that Agnes or anyone would find very hard to forgive. I must take my chances. Oh, my darling girl. Goodbye. And good luck. I'll write to you. Everything will be above board, I swear. Even in that teary goodbye, Ada is still taking time to warn her of doing business with Chamberlain is going to fuck you with with Agnes. Everything that Marion is doing right here is going to put her in a bad way with Agnes. But it's interesting that Ada takes the time to say Chamberlain's involvement, despite everything else here, 
Chamberlain's involvement is going to be a slight too far for Agnes to forgive. That's significant. Now, I think leading in your favor, for sure. <laughs> I'd like that you're like the judge and jury. Good. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I like to pride myself on being able to argue both sides. I was very good at debate club. Every other comment Ada made, you agree with. You're like, yeah, Tom Rakes is bullshit. Yeah, it's stupid. This is a desperate act, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you like hit the brakes and you're like, but I think Chamberlain's a good person despite Ada's comments. Well, Ada's, com- uh... Ada's comment here is not that Chamberlain is not a good person. Ada's comment here is that the, that using Chamberlain's help is a slight Agnes won't forgive. That's my whole thing. And Chamberlain knows that. Of course, Marion knows that, though. Mary, but, uh, okay, but no, but <laughs> what I was gonna say, what I think, what I think, what I think is a uh, a check in the be wary of Chamberlain column is that, as it turns out, after nine episodes, Agnes was in fact never wrong, as she so often mm-hmm. tells us, "I am never wrong." So I think that has to give you some pause and credence that by saying things like Chamberlain is tainted, that maybe there are things we don't know about Chamberlain or in fact this is grooming behavior this is at a precipice where it could be very easily she in fact is actually a good friend who is doing whatever she can as best she can for Marion or she is grooming her and is leading her down a path that will lead her to marching and and dancing with the devil yo you took it too far you took it too far I didn't say dancing with the devil well we're saying grooming grooming uh is a significant that's what I'm saying I'm just taking it too far you cannot take my comment too far what i'm saying is that you can wreck your family relationships by hanging out with people that they feel are not the right crowd and when that crowd says we're fully aware we're not the right people and we're fully aware that we're going to wreck all your family relationships but why don't you come over anyway they're not good people mike you don't go to their house because they're going to feed you a bunch of shit so don't do it and i understand that you think that she played nice the whole time she wants something out of marion you everything you said she wants a friend she wants someone to talk to she wants somebody on the inside of this you're totally right but that's all called using marion i don't think there's i don't think there i don't think there are the criminal offenses that that you know i have limitations on family over friendship family can be what you make it which is a oh, thing boy. you're willing her to throw out ada and agnes on this whole thing for chamberlain i'm not willing anything but i'm saying as the season ends i think chamberlain has been a good friend to her listen on the bulletin board we cease this discussion because we could go we're going to discuss this all summer i guarantee y'all <laughs> this is going to come up again i'm be like acting like miss chamberlain over there much <laughs> We'll be in other podcasts discussing other things. You're being a real Chamberlain, Mike. You're being a real Chamberlain. Chamberlain right now. Caroline. <laughs> I'm not being like uh, Chamberlain. If I had the button, I'd play Agnes's no right no. at you. <laughs> Oh, so, boy. Uh-uh, the war of no versus Caroline. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Let's finish off the ball with this little little exchange between George and Bertha. Do you think Mrs. Astor will accept your hand of friendship? No one would believe it, but who knows? Well, that's all for tomorrow. <laughs> Tonight for the bell of the ball. <laughs> that's for tomorrow, guys, is code for that's for season two. We have odds and ends with downstairs intrigue to, to handle, but I think we have to get to Peggy, who had a very compartmentalized story this episode a significant one and an emotional one and one that is going to is unresolved at the end of this episode when was it written three weeks ago is there an address no just the date 
and a name, Mrs. Wade. Postmarks from Philadelphia, see for yourself. The boy is doing well. And we are to assume this boy is my son. Why else would your father have made inquiries? Did you know? I did not. I accepted what I was told when he brought you home. He stole my child. And all the time he was working and sitting down to dinner with us and living a lie. He wasn't in his right mind. Please don't make excuses yeah, for him. I'm not. But I don't know what good can come of this. We won't find the boy, and Arthur won't help us. Us? Have you come over to my side? I've always been on your side. My baby is alive, Mama. My baby is alive, and I want him back. <laughs> I need a tissue. God damn it, to show. <laughs> I mean, this is a big fucking twist. I mean, it's one thing to think that your your child had died. It's one thing to find out that her father had run her man off and had the wedding annulled. This is some next level bullshit that Arthur is doing here. It's frightening. I mean, I think that, you know, the word monster was used early on in the season and we both looked at each other like, come on now, you know, being so being so upset, being so um, unsure about her being in a creative field and not taking over the family business does this really make him a monster now i hear the verbiage now i get it i hear it this was an accurate you know descriptor of him and the fact that this is such a huge secret and we have dorothy and peggy having to comprehend what he did i'm proud of them for packing their bags i'm proud of them for taking a stand and being like we're gonna figure this out like with or without you i'm shocked that he is so completely stubborn to be like you know what i'm not gonna help you consistent i mean yeah, he, but he doesn't budge. usually though when you see your wife and your kid with the packed suitcase you get ruffled the man was not ruffled <laughs> that moment when she when dorothy when audra mcdonald says you know we'll find him and and peggy hears her and looks up and says we like you're gonna be with me and she says like you know like i was never not with you like oh, what a good what a good family moment what a wonderful just an assurance that things can be okay and family can be okay and and you are not alone she's right there she never left you of course she's gonna be on your side here knowing this you know this idea that like no i didn't i didn't know i just accepted what i was told from her point of view, how could Dorothy possibly think for her to have an inkling that, that this is what Arthur has done would make Dorothy a monster in her own right, that she would be OK with it? You know, uh, it's cute, but it's so important, I think, for Peggy to hear that, to know she has an ally inside this beautiful house. Additionally, you have to remember that it goes beyond Peggy now. This isn't just a child that she's missing. This is a grandchild that Dorothy's missing. That's oof, the the love of a grandma. Uh, that That's going to be a force to be reckoned with to go find this little guy. I, I don't want to go against the Scott women. Uh, I would not. And, and I give them all the credit in the world. 
They will figure this out. I feel confident oh, yeah. they will figure this out. They will, you know, follow the clues. You know, with Dorothy, I assume had some access to money. I hope, and so now being funded, um, you know, I really think that that lot can happen. She tries to give Peggy, and the first time that we see her, yeah. remember when they're having lunch in that hall, she tries to give her money. So she clearly has access to something, and I, I don't There's think some petty cash. Going yeah, on, I don't least. think she's just packing up clothes when her and Peggy, when Arthur walks in, are busy packing up. I think she's taken away, taken some provisions with her some financial provisions with her let's listen to arthur being a complete asshole and so so unrepentant we know father know what you've no proof you don't know what we have we have proof the boy didn't die we believe he was adopted and you knew. If you're expecting me to say I'm sorry. We'd never be so foolish as to expect that. Then what do you want from me? We are catching an early train to Philadelphia. We intend to find my son. And we'd like your assistance. You won't get it. And you won't find him. Leave him alone. He's happy now and settled. I made sure of that. Do you think it wasn't hard for me? You should be ashamed of yourself. Why? Because I freed our daughter and our grandson from a life of shame. Everything I done was done for Peggy and the boy. I don't want to be free of my own child. Then ruin yourself if you must. But you'll do it without any help from me. Dude, when you have to opening your opening line is you got no proof. You're not starting on a great footing. <laughs> no, that that was really harsh and and mind blowing actually to see this father speak that way. Man, Arthur is is way more far gone than I really realized. I warned him early on in the season. He had oh, to you find. Did? You warned I, him. I did. I, I told him. I said, Arthur, you've got to find a middle ground between <laughs> wanting to raise a, a child that can survive in this world with the adversity she's going to face. You've got to temper that with love and empathy and consideration, or else you're going to lose her, and you're going to lose maybe your wife. And here we are. We've come to pass. His actions are unforgivable. They're unspeakable. They truly are. I, and 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 to be unrepentant about it. No, that motherfucker does not say sorry. He does not care. He is convinced still with his wife and his daughter, his only child walking out the door. He still is not giving an inch. I think that part of it that makes it just like a wee bit different is that Arthur does know that the boy is safe and has known where the boy was this whole time. So there's a little less of the shock value because he's not actually like, yes, his daughter isn't the one raising the child, but he's kept tabs on the child and he knows the child is taken care of. So there's something there that's like he can sleep better at night because he actually knows where the kiddo is and knows that the kid's okay to take that away from from the the women in his life to that just the simple you know that that he is safe and he is okay and in all the things i mean he's incredibly cruel because his own heart is settled because he knows what's what and to leave them in limbo ugh. I mean, that's it's it's very cruel. It's some Gilead bullshit. This is like what Gilead yeah. does. This is what the commanders do. Like, don't worry. I've taken your child. It's fine. Yeah. Right. Like, it's be happy. It's, it, it, right. Right. That's all you need to know. It's in the mm -hmm. safe place. I know better than you. Dude, 
dude, she came out of her body, not out of yours, my man. What what are you doing? Yeah, Arthur. Arthur's on a bad path. <laughs> oh, you need to go stay in the corner, dude. I imagine we're going to have some great Dorothy and Peggy on the hunt stuff next season, and I'm very excited about that. I hope maybe Audrey McDonald gets bumped to series regular. Fingers crossed in season two. So much progress has been made in her story and figuring it out and, and what information they need. And now, again, she has the financial backing with her mom and she has the emotional support of her mom. I think we have made leaps and bounds here and I very much look forward to them. The the adventures that they are going to have here, I think are going to be fantastic for season two. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is another example of if the series ended here, for some reason HBO hadn't renewed it and this is where Peggy's story ended, I, I'd be satisfied, not happy, obviously, about it, but I'd be satisfied that Peggy's story, the mystery was resolved to the point that we know not only is there a child, but the child is alive. And now she's setting off on an adventure to find the child. That would be enough if I had to live with it because it could be so much less resolved. But we do get a season two, so I'm excited to see that continuing. Let's head to the downstairs intrigue. Oh, Josh, Josh Borden. <laughs> I think the comic relief of him doing the American accent was really cracking me up. I mean, every time he did it, I was like... <laughs> so you brought it on your own head. I couldn't let it go on forever. Well, we're only a few days away from Mrs. Russell's ball. My wife thought that strengthened her hand. I had to stop her. If you're not Monsieur Baudin, why are you still talking like him? Because this is who I have been for years. And now it's hard to break the habit. If your name is Josh Borden and you come from Wichita, I think you've got to try. Church. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Oh, and his voice cracks a little bit. Oh, Josh, Josh Borden, my heart breaks for you. <laughs> What a funny little twist, huh? Funny little twist. I never saw it coming, but I, God damn, it's delightful. It really <laughs> is delightful. I've been working on the, you're right. You're absolutely right. I've been working on it like all week. Like, I love it. You're right. You're absolutely right. I love I it. I appreciated this little storyline because it really put Bertha in the the Mrs. Astor role, you know, of the deciding who's in and who's out. And, and how will we, you know, handle this now that we know this is an outsider? We know this isn't someone who should be a part of our society. Will we let them remain? And at first, no. And then come to realize, you know what? We've got to let them in. I mean, he was like the teeny tiny little microcosm of this much larger Russell story. What? It's true. He's just a farm boy from Kansas. Then how did it all start? Just in that one clip, you can hear the glee in George's voice. George is not upset by this story. George is amused by the story. And and by the way, I think he's impressed at at, I at, think so too, at yeah. Borden's hustle. But let's listen to the whole clip because I got a lot to say. This makes me love George even more. What? It's true. He's just a farm boy from Kansas. Then how did it all start? He was a merchant seaman. He left the ship in France, found a job washing dishes at a restaurant in Cannes. He trained there. But when he got back to New York, he discovered that nobody wanted a cook from Wichita. They were all looking for a chef from Gay Perry. And so he became Monsieur Baudin? He was quite settled into the role when we met him. What's his real name? Borden. Josh Borden. And why are we being told now? His wife has tracked him down. And she wants money. Worse, she wanted a reconciliation. 
She found out he was doing well. No doubt we will be hearing from her soon. Well, I'm sorry, George, but we cannot have a chef from Kansas. We'd be a laughing stock. But if the food's the same... You don't know the women of New York. They're all looking for something about us to ridicule. And when they hear that we were taken in, we'd be providing it on a plate. Literally. If that's your decision. It is. And I want him gone for the ball. I'll send a message to the agency in the morning for the best available chef on their books. I'll give Baudin excellent references. You needn't look stricken. It's unfair. He's a hard worker. He's been living a lie, George, and has made us vulnerable to every snob in New York. We must do it. It's unfair, and he's a hard worker. These are the things that George values, and I love this storyline because it's another way for us to see what makes both of Bertha and George tick. Bertha is doing damage control for for what can she she is creating a fortress here and trying to make it as impenetrable as possible. And can you imagine after all she's done the the thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars of building this palace, and it's the fucking French cook from the Middle West that does you in could you imagine what that would feel like to her no i mean i think that she would go on a rampage <laughs> but george wants people pulling people up by their bootstraps and and this guy is the epitome of that he's a poster child a french cooking poster child from wichita for pulling yourself up he also just wants to give him the same chance that he wants to give his wife you know yeah. like he wants to move up in society and he is capable and skilled enough to do that why are we going to sit here and say he can't just because of where he came from, which which he cannot help? You know, he's trying to make something of himself. I, You know, I appreciate, like I said, teeny tiny microcosm of the much larger story here. Uh, I, I, I hope you did, because I definitely snorted out loud when uh, Bertha says, and now she wants money. And George says, worse, she wants a reconciliation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe laugh out loud. I, I love this whole storyline. You're right. You're absolutely right. I, it's gonna be in my head. It's 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 up there with no. Nope. Uh, I love it. I love Josh Borden so so much. And then he saves the day for next for next season. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, he saves the day, which again I love because it, it reaffirms George's faith in him. Because that's what a hard worker does. You know, he doesn't haggle over the over the price of the hose. Right when when your neighbor's house is on fire you don't haggle over the price of the hose you lend your neighbor the hose and then you work it out later that's what borden does with uh, monsieur we can we call him monsieur borden maybe we will combine his french and wichita names uh, <laughs> monsieur josh <laughs> that's what he does he doesn't haggle over getting a job back he doesn't even expect to get his job back when george says he should be rehired he looks to bertha and says will mistress be willing to have a cook from wichita like he's only concerned with doing a good job and doing and not embarrassing them which is consistent with his character all season long if you go back and listen to all of the different bodan scenes that we've seen he is a team player who wants to make this russell house as grand as it can be but it also explains like the day that um, Bannister came over and was looking at the menu and was like I don't really think this is right and and, and he was all like wait, wait wait why can't I why can't we serve soup and why can't we do this and and it's like that should have given us an inkling of like perhaps you know uh, this isn't exactly French cooking like we all think of it like I, I loved it because it was a teeny tiny little opportunity that you could have dug into that and and you know now we got the answer 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I just like it. I like how it I like how it wound up. I think the idea that Sharon, the replacement chef, gets too drunk to finish the dinner, I thought was very funny. This is all very lighthearted, but also when you look at it, when you sit and you think about it, it is. You you said it perfectly. It's a microcosm for the entire Bertha George Russell story. And appearances versus results. Form over substance, right? I mean, it, it's all of that wrapped up in this silly little French chef plot. Loved, loved, loved it. And you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. P.S. I'm really glad you don't talk like that all the time. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. No. Uh, I don't even know what that is. You're I going all over the place. I, you got some Wisconsin the in oh, there. This is uh, Wichita. It's, it's, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I only practiced. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's all I practiced. I, didn't, <laughs> I can't believe you practiced it, but I know you I, did. I, you know. I, I've been saying. I've been. <laughs> I live with a cat and no one else. You live with a cat. Oh, my God. I'm spending a lot of time muttering and puttering around my, about my apartment. Just. Just telling Elvira she's absolutely right. You're, you're right, Elvira. You're absolutely right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Where was I? We're downstairs. We got to finish out with Watson here. I laughed, though, when she said, can we at least say he's from the Middle West instead? Yeah, that was so and Not funny. the Midwest. The Middle West. I just, yes. oh, the whole thing was very funny. It made me laugh yes. out loud. Watson. Monsieur Carrier. Uh, what is the deal here? This is a whole season two thing. And he yeah. shits himself when he hears Robert, Mr. and Mrs. Robert McNeil get announced at the ball. He stops and turns and then runs. Like, is, is, <laughs> is he, is he Flora's father? Is he an ex lover of someone in the family? I feel age difference wise. He can't. I mean, obviously she would know who he was if she was a lover or something. Well, one would hope he would. She would recognize his face. <laughs> we don't know what Flora's maiden name is. Maybe Flora's maiden name is Collier, and maybe he is the baby dad. Who knows? I mean, that makes the most sense to me, given the age and and the age differences. Do you think and stuff. that he looks like twenty years older than her? I, yeah. See, that's what I was like. I was struggling with because I was like, I don't know if he looks old enough. I think the McNeils are a younger family. At least Flora looks younger, and I think. I think Watson is older. I mean, I think I think there's a twenty. I think a twenty age year gap is. But who knows? A total mystery. They really didn't give any away. I'm just I'm doing pure supposition and, and guesswork here because they really didn't give anything away other than laying little seeds that I'm excited for season two to see how it plays out. We know now, in fact, he is not. Uh, related to the eventual valet across the pond at, at the Grantham house and, you know, Downton Abbey. We know that, sadly. Uh, it turns out that fan fiction I've been writing is for naught. <laughs> but otherwise, we don't really know anything about the story. Very excited to see where that goes. Here is a fun little thing, because they didn't do a whole lot with it. Uh, we had that little moment where Jack and Bridget are watching the ball start up and everyone arriving. They talk about whether or not one day they'll be and going to those kinds of balls. I love that line because that's the American dream, right? That's not something you would ever hear any of the downstairs staff in Downton Abbey say. Now, some of them did go on to do things. I mean, for God's sakes, the chauffeur of Downton Abbey marries one of Lord Grantham's uh, daughters, and he does rise up from downstairs, but and it's fraught the entire time. But for the most part... None of the butlers or valets or cooks in Downton Abbey ever, ever thought about one day they'll get to go to dinner in the upstairs house. 
But you have Jack and Bridget here saying maybe we will one day because that's quintessentially American. I was very excited. Julian brought up that very point about this show versus Downton Abbey. I don't know if did, – did we talk about that during the interview or was that during the pre-talk? No, I'm not exactly sure. But I know definitely – I mean he 100 percent commented on that, that, that definitely in America, you know, things are far more fluid, you know, class-wise and you could definitely move up the ranks as opposed to, you know, being over in, in Europe or England and, and having to deal with, you know, your, the station you were born in. So I felt like there, there was actually some hope for Bridget and Jack. Like maybe. We don't know, kids. We don't know. There are so many things about season one of The Gilded Age that is so American in its tale. But this little snippet at the end of this episode, at the end of the season, was just a little kick in the pants reminder. Yeah, you're in America, baby. Like the 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 under the footman of this house one day become be a great businessman, could become a great inventor. The there is no ceiling for so many of these people. It's exciting. I, it gives it gives you a lot of hope for a season two, and 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 the way that people can move between stations. I think there's a lot of a lot of excitement there. Lots of change. Church continuing to look a little bit confused every time Bannister nods at him started making me wonder for the first time in this episode that maybe is it possible Church didn't in fact send that letter to Bannister and that maybe Turner fingers Bannister fingers Church in her letter. Is it possible that maybe he didn't? Because he looks truly bewildered that Bannister keeps nodding at him with a knowing look. He doesn't look as fearful as he looks confused to me now. I don't know. It absolutely makes sense that Turner could have written the letter to Agnes and then also then fingered, you know, Church as the one who did it. Because she's an agent of chaos, right? I mean, just... Totally enjoys the chaos. Right, because we have been so steadfast. Because remember, Church excuses himself when he's all angry, and the next we know that letter. So the the show sets you up perfectly for obviously Church did it, but his continuing reaction and confusing. And again, we see it here in the end of this episode. You know, as morning rises, he looks more confused than worried at Bannister's looks to him. I for the first time I started thinking maybe he didn't actually send the letter. Maybe he has no idea why Bannister's winking and looking at him. He's not winking. Well, at he him, doesn't but- look guilty. Like you said, he doesn't look guilty. He looks confused. Like, what are you doing? Right, yeah. right, right, right. I'm, so, hey, I'm happy to say that Turner's got some crap here still lingering around. We know she's going to stick around for oh. season two. She's going to come popping back up like a scary little jack-in-the-box. I'm telling you, she's going to show up. She's going to have a baby bump uh, pillow or something <laughs> Shut uh, up. with like a beard on, on the baby's face or something, like Morgan Spector's <laughs> beard or something. I, I'm telling you, we haven't seen the last of Turner for sure. Little beardo. A little? <laughs> Beardo. Uh, let, let's do a quick reconnaissance on the season that was and the season that is yet to be as we wind down here in our third plus hour of talking about this episode. Which stories, which characters do you think the show did the best with over the course of the season? I think that Peggy and, and the entire Scott family was really a great add to the story because they have this opportunity um, as as the larger storytellers to, to bring in all of this culture and historical events and things that were going on during this time that most people were never taught about. And so I think that Peggy herself being this, this up and coming writer and having this opportunity to see a relationship with her mom, have this, this, 
a successful family business. There's a lot going on there. And of course, her time at the Globe is going to be so exciting. I think that for me, her whole family as a unit was was a a lot of excitement. Like I was really drawn to to her story. How about you? I think for two side characters, I think I have a very good sense of who Dorothy and Arthur Scott are, which is remarkable because I think there are some more mainline regular cast members that I don't know as well or not nearly as fleshed out. But I think where the show really excelled was in the character of Peggy and the character of George Russell. I think those two characters more than any other in the show were fully three-dimensionally drawn people where we have a really good understanding of everything that motivates them, what makes them tick, what their good aspects are, what their flaws are, and and different parts to them. Peggy, we saw her ambitious and, and career-driven and doing something with trying to become a journalist. But we also learned this very vulnerable side to her of a, of a grieving mother who didn't know what happened to her son, who had her husband ripped away from her. That's very complex character development that they did with Peggy. George is this ruthless businessman all the way through the series, from episode one through episode nine. He's still, he's still strong-arming Kuiper in episode nine. He's threatening to ruin Thornburg all the way back in the first episode episode or the second episode they all blend together but we also see him as a very involved caring father he is a person he is a man that we see being very devoted to his wife and yes while there is tension when he's facing murder charges overall very committed to making sure she's a success there is a three-dimensionality a three-dimensional aspect to him and to Peggy that I think they come close to with Bertha, but I feel like Bertha is so singularly focused in this season that we don't know everything about her. I don't know everything that ticks about Bertha. I haven't seen her be as mothering to her kids as I think we see George. I think we see George interact with his kids in a more substantial way than Bertha did. We only have seen Bertha. Yes, she's involved with the Red Cross and she's involved a little bit with George's business, but there's more there to show us. So I think at the end of the day, I think they did the best job with creating George and Peggy as these three-dimensional characters that I feel like I really understand everything about them. I also feel that those two characters in particular had a lot of of individual moments of being tested in a variety of ways, whether it be personal, whether it be um, in their careers, whether it be their relationships um, romantically, whether it be, you know, their friendships, they're like, they handled things with a variety of people. And we didn't really see that for Bertha. Like you said, like, we didn't see the mom role. We didn't like we saw her be a wife, we saw her be this like society climber. But like, those two that you mentioned, really were tested. I mean, think about it, like really feed it to the fire about who are you? What is your character? And they had to make hard decisions and we saw them make them and, and be definitive about it. So I think that that, that goes to everything you're saying of just why you feel like you know them so well, because if someone presented an issue and said, if you think this issue came in front of George, what would he do? You know, and same with Peggy, you know, she would stand her ground. You know, George would be ruthless. You know, he'd take the, the next step and make sure you couldn't get a job after him you know like they're so well defined because they were consistently tested throughout the season 
he said, Miss Ainsley says to him, you wouldn't do that. And George says, I think we both know that I would. (laughs) I think we all know that you would, George. I think everyone knows. Silly, right. I love that so much. So who are you most looking forward to learning more about in season two? I think Marion is going to be interesting to watch her to continue to evolve. I'm very interested to see Marion bounce back and how she bounces back from this Rakes incident. I think this is the kind of thing that will change her permanently, but we didn't get to see it yet because she's literally dealing with the the whole incident as the episode ends. So I'm very excited to see where she, where the story picks up, if it is the next day or if there is a time jump next season. I'm curious to see where Marion is on her journey. I think she has so much maturing and, and evolving to do. I think this is a character that we're going to be watching grow and change over the course of the entire series. I'd like to see what the Russell kids are going to do. You know, when Ward tells uh, Mrs. Astor, they'll both find matches. They're good looking and they smell like money. The sweetest scent there ever was. I mean, he's right. He's right. Both Larry and Gladys are going to have to get on the marriage stick in next season. Larry's getting old. You know, that clock is ticking on Larry and Gladys is out now. So now it's time to start matchmaking. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. You know, and so I'm curious to see how do they become more three-dimensional characters. I think the show started to do the work with Larry in the back end of the episodes when this architect thing came about and he finally talked to his father about it. I think that was a huge leap forward uh, for Larry. I'm curious to see where that goes. I also want to see how the roles change of old rules and new rules. I want to see Ada step out of Agnes's old rules and 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 be a little more Aurora-like. I want to see somebody's walls start to come down because presumably – Mrs. Astor is not going to destroy Bertha as she threatens. You know, the way the story goes is Mrs. Astor goes to Alva Vanderbilt's uh, housewarming ball, uh, and th- which is a huge step to put Alva Vanderbilt and her husband into society. Later that year, uh, Mrs. Astor invited those Vanderbilts to her annual gala ball which is what really cemented them into society. So the, the the invitation to you come to my house now for one of my big balls was reciprocated. I'd love to see more of that breaking down uh, of this. You know, 1883 in New York was as exciting a year as 1882. Lots of stuff happening in New York at this time. Lots of stuff happening in the world. So I'm excited to see the historical stuff come in and just how these worlds are colliding and changing and, and the difference between old money and new money and old rules and new rules breaks down a little bit more it feels like there could even be like an added layer in there like old old rules then just sort of like rules and then like the new kids like you have agnes and ada going on over here and and smack in the middle you have like the russells and maybe even aurora and stuff like there's some people in there that kind of work in that sort of middle ground like they're adults but they're younger adults and they're they're still flexible they're still willing to like be open-minded but then you have the new crew of like Larry and Oscar and and Gladys and Marion and they're a whole other like going to change the rules again. I don't think it's going to be so like one or the other. It's going to start to be like variations, you know, like gradations of the rules. Um, and I think all of that will be exciting. I'd like to see Charles Fane grow a beard. Oh, me too. Not not that everyone should have a beard in their life. Mm, I think everyone should have a beard. 
I think Larry could use a beard. <laughs> uh, I don't know that Larry is capable of growing a beard at this point. I want but... him to. What if he can? I don't know how he should challenge his father beard-wise. Maybe just start with a goatee or some kind of, you know. <laughs> a little mustache. A, a mustache. But uh, <laughs> Charles, you're, you're going to increase your hotness factor like 10 times if you just grow a beard, my dude. So I, I Can't it. you see Aurora laying in bed with Charles one night and be like, just kind of caressing his face and be like, why don't you try a beard, honey? Things you think about. I never think about Aurora and Charles in bed but i'm sure you do and oh, I, I love yeah, it I that your main concern is, is that he's beardless <laughs> i mean if i if i'm aurora laid in bed with charles Spain, you know she's you're thinking about george about the beard. you know she's thinking about george's oh, beard stop it you think she's all like that oh, i think she might be a little bit like Oof. that that, aye, that aye, beard's aye. doing a lot of work, Caroline. I oh, don't know. Yeah, I think that's something I discussed with Julian uh, Fellows there. I think I'm all like, hey, like his beard's a whole character unto itself. I think I said, su- I think I suggested it may have its own trailer on the lot. <laughs> I think Julian uh, confirmed with us that it's all real. Uh, he real. did. He did. In real beardage. Fact. He feel, in fact, then uh, apparently, I believe Morgan Spector still has the beard, which normally he is not a bearded gentleman. <laughs> Dude, he needs to keep it because his his chin's gonna look minute if when he shaves that off. Don't shave it. Last question: What's something you're hoping the show does more of or less of in season two? Again, I know you're a Downton Abbey guy. I didn't spend very much time in in old Downton, so I don't know very much about this whole balance of upstairs downstairs. But I didn't think that season one had near as much downstairs as. I thought I was kind of expecting. So my guess is that as things kind of settle and and the Russells are sort of ensconced in their place in society, I'm guessing we're going to have to have more downstairs action, yeah. especially with things like Mrs. Turner and and you know just just kind of the, these question marks that are revolving around you know even Armstrong. I mean, like she's such a jerk, you know. You know, we haven't we didn't see her in the last episode at all, and I don't know that did we see her in episode eight in after the big blow like up dungeon and with Agnes. Agnes, we don't know. I, I realize I, I I don't think we saw Mrs. Bauer either, but hmm. it was significant to me that we did not see Mrs. Armstrong in this final episode. Uh, you're 100 percent right because they introduce storylines for almost all of downstairs people. You have Turner, you have Watson, you have Church over in the Russell household, Mrs. Bruce having a little flirty flirty with Bodan. Or you're right, you're absolutely right. I like Mrs. Bruce uh, over in the Russell house. You've got Bridget's abuse storyline. You've got Mrs. Bowers' gambling debt. You've got Armstrong's racism and stupidity. You've got Jack and Bridget doing their whole thing. Uh, there's a lot in the downstairs that they introduced to us that they didn't finish at all. So I, I, I think you're right. I think the downstairs intrigue has to up in season two. I believe you're right. Well, I'm really looking forward to all of it. And I really can't wait for everyone to listen to all of the interviews that are coming between Julian Fellows and Sonia Warfield. And then now we have the composers coming on. I just feel like there's a lot going on in my brain. I'm like already fully in season two. I'm like in costumes right now getting my little wardrobe ready. Well, guys, the sun is coming up on 61st Street. (laughs) Breakfast has been had in the Russell's drawing room. The morning is coming. It is time to do the walk of shame home in our ball gowns and our tuxedos. I love my most favorite part of the night is taking off the, your heels and just carrying them around. That's same for my me. Favorite time, yeah. So, same for me. I love love taking off those. Yes. 
This is Caroline. <laughs> and this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. For one more time, please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could, please leave us a five-star review. If you do, we'll read it on air, like this one from user 474948573. God, I hope that's not their phone number. Absolute love this show. New favorite series. Love everything about this show. The acting's incredible. The sets are amazing. The storyline's addicting. Gobbling up these episodes. Looking forward to hopefully long run with this show. Five stars. Thank you, numbers. I love when the numbers write into the show. I think that's fantastic. I love when the computers reach out and and write their reviews. So we I appreciate. Say it. A little. I want to say a little shout out to uh, to Judith. Um, old judith dupree is out there doing her walks today and she said we're her walking buddies and so i i want to say get your steps girl we're we're walking with you uh ray the nerd fun podcast five stars the hosts have a fun banter and i love learning historical tidbits that inspire the show (laughs) we do have a fun banter we do have a fun banter i know right it's true you're right you're absolutely right (laughs) still dixie landings to me Great. Five stars. Wonderful cheeky review. Now listen, I didn't say it had I didn't say it had to be a long review. It just had to be a five-star review. And uh still Dixie Landings to me. Got it. Guys, thank you that. for everyone that listened. You guys kept us you I mean, there's over twenty-seven thousand podcasts out there that cover TV shows. We have been in the top hundred the entire season. That's because of you. We are one of the top rated after shows. That's because of you. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for writing. Thank you for being in the Facebook group and and the wonderful conversations going on over there. Definitely go check out the Facebook group because I don't think that's going to slow down at any time at all. Keep checking in on your RSS feed because we'll be back with interviews. Really just want to thank everyone on, on behalf of me, Caroline, on behalf of Pod Clubhouse. Just thank you guys for listening. It's been a great ride these uh, nine episodes the last nine weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.